Welcome to another episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around, I spoke to Lucy Rycroft-Smith. Lucy is a former maths teacher and head of maths, who is now the Research and Communications Officer at Cambridge Mathematics. Now, the reason I wanted to have Lucy on the show is that I'm a little bit addicted to her espressos. Now, anyone who knows me will know my chosen brand of coffee is a very milky and pathetically weak cup of mellow birds. But these are mathematical espressos, bite-sized chunks of mathematical research into key areas. I originally planned to ask Lucy about five of these areas and have everything wrapped up in under an hour, just in time for my evening Mellow Birds, in fact. But once we started talking, we could not stop, as Lucy dropped nugget after nugget. So, in a wide-ranging interview, we covered the following things and more. How did Lucy deal with poor behaviour during her time as head of maths? Would Lucy have advocated centrally planned lessons in her department? How did many of Lucy's maths lessons go wrong, and what did she learn from the experience? Why is the quest for engagement in mathematics a problematic one? Then we hit the espressos, and we cover five key questions. What are the effects of attainment grouping on mathematics learning? What are the issues in learning and assessing times tables? How does maths anxiety affect mathematics learning? How does assessing confidence affect learning and testing in maths? And finally, how can mathematics teaching be measured? And then after all that, Lucy reflects on the most important research she's ever read, books she'd recommend to teachers, and what she wishes she knew when she first started teaching that she knows now. Listen, I promise you this episode is absolute gold, and that is nothing to do with me whatsoever. Lucy's incredibly well read, but has the impressive ability to relate all of the research to experiences she has had during her many years in the classroom. This leads to a series of fascinating and practical takeaways that you can build directly into your teaching. Lucy mentions lots of papers and there are links to everything on the podcast page, along with a link to my own research page in case this has left you wanting more. Also, Lucy forgot to mention Black Mathematicians Month, which is happening in October. And again, there are links to this on the podcast page. And just before we crack on, my podcast hit a significant milestone just before I recorded this episode, 100,000 downloads. Thank you so, so much to all my guests who've, who've come on this show, given up the time and helped transform the way I teach and continually make me strive to be better. And a massive thank you to all of you who listen and have helped spread the word about this podcast. I cannot tell you how much it means to me to know people find these interviews as useful as I do. Long may they continue. So, without further ado, let me introduce Lucy Rycroft-Smith. I really hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. And just as a heads up, I start by asking Lucy her favourite number. If you're expecting a straightforward answer, indeed, if you're expecting to hear a number at all, then you might be disappointed. Enjoy, I know you will, and as ever, I will see you on the other side. (laughs) 
Okay, Lucy, so we start as ever with your maths speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Goodness me, I'm going to be a very annoying guest because... there's a book that you might have heard of called uh, I think you'll find it's a bit more complicated than that oh yes I like it yes <laughs> by ben which is a great book and that's pretty much my answer to many many questions in the world um, and certainly this one I, I think, you know, favourite number for me comes under a similar sort of category to favourite colour. And I will talk about colours probably quite a lot because I'm, I'm quite into um, art and visual things. Um, but the idea of somebody asking me what my favourite number is with no context, I can't even begin to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> because um, it's all about the context. So it's kind of not, you know, a number without any context is, is not at all how I process mathematics really I'm, I'm quite a visual creative mathematician and so it's more about uh, relationships between things um, it's the contrast and the collaboration between things and, and like I say the context so you know you might say 94 is a great number um, yes a great number if I got that score in my maths test um, but then you need a comparison it's probably not great if everyone else got 100 um, it's probably terrible for a, a temperature <laughs> or hours in my working week or my number of tests I've still got to mark on a Sunday night (laughs) um, that for me is kind of how how I feel about that question it's 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 all really contextual Um, I I hope this isn't setting the tone for all my questions Lucy (laughs) a little bit Craig I'm sorry about that Um, but yeah it's just it's it's a kind of you know taken taken out of context is a very abstract thing it's just it kind of not how I would um express it at all (laughs) sorry if that was not helpful no that's fine it's possibly the most interesting answer we've had to that one I may have to reevaluate my speed dating questions but that's fine let let me try on number two then what what was your favorite topic in maths as a student um, well, this one is interesting, I think, because I suspect, like many many people who later fell in love with maths, it wasn't always my favourite. It didn't always fill me with consummate joy, um, and I think I spent a great deal of my early uh, school maths career not being particularly turned on by it. Um, and it wasn't really until I read some books outside of my my classroom experience about mathematics um, that I began to. I think start to feel that that real um, wonder and, and joy and awe about the subject that that later was a hallmark of how I felt. I think, um, and that's that's kind of interesting to me because I actually think that's partly to do with identity, because um, I spent a lot of my school career being told I was um, good at art and English and drama and things like that, um, and therefore I wasn't a scientist or I wasn't a mathematician. And people still to this day, as you know, an, a 33 year old woman try and uh, label me in one way or another and constrain my identity like that and I think I just really struggled because I didn't really feel part of the maths community I didn't feel like a mathematician but coming at it through books was interesting because you know I was into books and I always have been into books so I started to read a few books that really opened my eyes to you know really creative interesting imaginative ideas around maths Um, and I think that for me was when I started to to really find things that I loved there Um, so yeah favorite topics again it's more about you know the I guess the collaboration between things the connection between things that really interests me can, can I ask you Lucy sorry to interrupt what what books that kind of did it for you yeah so probably two particularly um I read uh Simon Singh's Fermat's Last Theorem quite early on and just loved it loved it um I got some to can me you remember some- what, what age you were um uh, late teens maybe I mean right. quite 
sort of quite old, really, um, uh, because I didn't choose to study maths first of all at university. I, I studied art and philosophy first. Um, and then Paul Hoffman's um, The Man Who Loved Only Numbers, which you, you yes. might have heard of. Uh, goodness me, I was just absolutely fascinated by this sort of very human story um, about, you know, the person behind some brilliant mathematics um, and that idea of human narratives and the mysterious figures behind the discoveries um, and all of the, yeah, the human narratives, that that started to really pull me in. And I think once I started to, to read a bit more, about that I was really hooked um I think topology as well I mean that probably comes up a lot but because it's not really present on the school curriculum I think often unless we happen to have a maths teacher who's really into it um we, we miss out early on in you know really interesting ideas about surfaces and shapes and connections and dimensions and all that stuff and I think when I was first introduced just a few really simple ideas about topology I, I began to be really interested in it Got it. Fantastic. And well, question number three, then, uh, to conclude our speed date is what job would you like to do if you weren't involved in maths and education in general? (laughs) This is so hard. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I was thinking about this and I think um, one of the things that really interests me about people and life really is that sort of the idea of why people choose the paths they do, why people choose their hobbies or their specialisms or to some extent their identities and what sort of tiny accent of fate might have meant that you get hooked on one thing and another because, you know, talk to people who are really, really experts in their field or really interested in something and you say, what happened? So I just had this conversation with someone who was really good at this thing or I read this article or I saw this film and, you know, I, I, I feel like in, in another universe... <laughs> Um, I could really be interested in almost anything, you know, um, because it's to some extent about the time and attention you give something rather than the thing itself for me. But um, having said that, I I probably have a couple. I would love to be an opera singer. (laughs) I haven't given up on that dream. and uh, I mean, I am a writer, so I can't really um, I can't really say that was an alternative um, board game journalist probably would be my number two. Uh, board games are one of my favourite things ever. <laughs> Flipping out. Well, I'll tell you what, what we're going to get into your recommendations later, but what's your favourite board game, Lucy? Uh, oh, come on. <laughs> um, it's contextual. Depends on who I'm playing with. What time of day what i feel like i should have learned i should have learned yeah <laughs> yeah but there are some brilliant ones out there absolutely brilliant um i don't think i could pin it down to one right now but I'll, I'll come fine. up with a few at the end that's fine perfect well it sounds like yeah i mean interesting already this lucy because it sounds like maths wasn't something you were into early on and no, it no, tends to be kind of half my guests were always loved maths half of them kind of developed it later on and you seem to be in that latter group so just just talk us through that maybe start at university and then just take us through to how you got to where you are now then yeah so i started off studying art and philosophy um and, you know, I've always struggled to pick a specialism, really. I, I'm interested in many, many fields. And that's probably um, a bit of a hallmark of my career in the sense that I'm, uh, you know, there's a there's a portfolio there, I suppose. Um, I, I struggle to pin down one thing. Um, I'm lucky enough to be involved in one thing at the moment that I'm, I'm really working on deeply. And that's a lovely thing. But I do have a really wide range of interests. And um, I just... <laughs> quite pragmatically got to a point at university where I just didn't really feel stretched and I uh, wanted to do something really hard <laughs> and had a conversation uh, with uh, somebody who uh, gave me some very good advice who said maths is the one, of, one of the hardest things that you'll find if you want to do something hard go and study maths for a bit um, 
and I thought, yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and so I did, and it was. <laughs> so this was at, at university, this? Yeah, yeah, so I switched after my first year. Flipping heck. Like, and, and so I assume you'd done maths at A-level, had you? I'd done maths A-level, yeah. Got yeah. it, right. Okay, so you, you you switched to maths during university and enjoyed it? Well, was it as tricky as you thought? Yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I took quite a wide range of modules. Um, and, uh, yeah, I really did enjoy it. Um, but, you know, as, as I said, one characteristic really is that I, I, I try really hard not to narrow myself. So I actually took maths and I did Shakespeare right. <laughs> um, alongside in this sort of American model of a, a major and a yes. minor. Um, but it was it was thrilling. Yeah, I absolutely loved it. And I went on to, to do the PGC after that because I think I saw you know during that period of studying actually that yes it was hard but it was also because it was hard for me because I was going through that process of coming at it from an angle of um this doesn't come naturally I suppose I hesitate because I don't think it's particularly helpful but I certainly came at it from an angle that was often unusual um I thought perhaps this is uh, a useful thing in order to I guess um think about teaching as a career because you know, I started to think maybe the profession needs people who see things a bit unusually. Maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> um, and hopefully it is. Oh, no, absolutely. So you were straight straight from university, straight into PGCE and then straight straight into a, a secondary maths teaching job, was it? Well, actually, I was studying with the Open University and teaching already ah, and right. teaching the whole the whole way through my PGC, which was quite unusual. But the Open University are a wonderful organisation. I'm going to plug them a little bit because they're amazing. But one thing I was able to do is study whilst I worked. So I was teaching unqualified um, and then studying and sort of learning uh, on the job to some extent, doing the PGC part-time while I was also teaching. Um, and the I think looking back now and certainly looking at the teacher education um, situation, you know, in that time, about 10 years ago, um, or a little bit longer, <laughs> the the situation that I had was actually I had some amazingly great materials and, and uh, people that I came into contact with. I was immensely lucky. Um, you know, I was studying materials by John Mason and Sue Johnston Wilder and the people that I came into contact with that, that were mentoring me um, are still in my life now. They were incredible teachers. And I, I think that was a really lucky accident. Um, and so I've been in incredibly lucky because I think you know it didn't have to necessarily go that way um but that was you know a real high point and I, I think the OU uh, really I, I owe a lot to them and um I've, I mean just like John Mason's one of my absolute yeah. all, all-time heroes <laughs> so I mean so what what kind of work of his did you come in contact with with early on well, the Open University were doing um, modules and they were quite new then, um, which were about pedagogy alongside math. So teaching uh, particular areas. So there was teaching right. statistics, teaching geometry, um, and there were really sort of um, careful and deep and really well designed materials that involved basically sort of doing maths but watching yourself do maths. right yes um, and you know all the stuff that that john is really well known for um and that process going through that process and examining each topic um anew and trying to i think to some extent break the cycle of my teacher taught me this i'm going to you know transmit that also to my yes. people break that cycle that was something that was really drummed into me um on my open university pgc and uh, you know, the idea of breaking down tasks in a textbook and reconstructing them, um, making sure that you really explicitly design lesson materials 
materials um you know not necessarily in a kind of you have to reinvent the wheel way but actually just pay attention to them just pay attention to to the journey you're expecting people to go on that's something that was drilled into me right at the beginning of my career and actually i'm really grateful about that because i think that was uh, an incredibly helpful thing to begin with yeah that, that sounds absolutely great advice to, to get early on <laughs> flipping it and then what, what, happened, what happened then lucy so how like how long did you stay teaching did you become head of maths what what talk us through I your rest of your teaching great. career it's a wonderful <laughs> story um i yeah so i i i um started teaching i mean pretty much the week after i stopped my PhD. Okay. i was thrown into this wonderful job um at this great international school uh the only slight downside uh being that i was teaching mechanics uh, at a level which was not my specialty. right no me neither <laughs> yeah. one of those where i had big shoes to fill the teacher that i was replacing i think um had studied astronomy and physics and she was incredible by all accounts and it was one of those uh okay. yes <laughs> um and so i had this uh this kind of role to i mean i was teaching all the way across the school but particularly the a-level was incredibly challenging you know learning as i went trying to be one step ahead of the kids i'm sure i was uh, not at all good at it for at least okay. two years um but that was that was wonderful that was a really good beginning it was a sort of mixed comprehensive school but like i say international so we had um a real flavor of um lots of different cultures a really diverse student body um languages were really important part of the school so i actually got to teach in different languages um which was wonderful Gee, uh, we we used um i don't know if you've heard of the uh, i think it's university of liverpool produces fun maths roadshow which is incredible really great materials and they're just little puzzles but they um they have this kind of um day where they'll come to the school and and there's a big box of these puzzles and they're um all out on tables kids aren't allowed to sit down they must stand up um, and we said to them, look, as a sort of project, why don't we try translating these into a few different languages and see how it goes with the pupils? Because we don't think actually many of these need that much um, language in terms in terms of interpretation. Yes. Um, and it might be a really fun exercise to do. So that was a big project that I worked on really early on. I think it was probably my second year in teaching, and that was so fun. You know, how much language do you need to interpret mathematical puzzles? And we we did it year on year and kind of gathered loads of data, and we had enormous fun. Um, and then I did, I, I sort of launched straight into a master's after that. So I was doing kind of leadership in education stuff, maths education, research stuff. And the school were amazing. They let me try almost anything. <laughs> um, I was doing great big art projects. We made uh, life-size elephants every year um, out of, or we did this kind of scaling up activity. And yeah, it was it was really wonderful. I, you know, it was a great beginning to the career, really, um, and a very supportive department. Flipping egg. So and yeah. then it progressed. And it was that the school that you stayed on to become head of maths? No, I moved. I moved to a different school to become head of maths, and it was an incredibly challenging school. <laughs> um, it was one of those where, in hindsight, you think, you know, I was quite young uh, yes. taking on that role, and probably some something of a poison. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you got to ask yourself why nobody wanted that job um but actually you know it was interesting it was it was a, it was a real trial by fire in lots of ways you know as these things often are so yeah i was there managing department 14 staff um and and behavior was really really appalling 
and that was you know for me the first time I'd really encountered that sort of level of behavior um, and where the systems weren't really in place um, so it was it was a difficult situation really um, where you had to try and you know obviously support other members of the department um, make sure that your teaching was exemplary and try and yes. be involved people um, you know I think it was it was a really big ask and it was tough going well, can I just ask on that, Lucy? What 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 do you, what do you do in that situation? Because I know I, I've spoken to a couple of head of departments who've been there, and it, it's tough enough for a teacher, like a, a non-head of department, to move school and find themselves kind of shocked by the behaviour and um, without the, the whole school systems in place. But for a head of department, that that must be incredibly tough. So, what what do you do there? Like, what what of some of the things you did worked well? Um, well, I mean, I made sure that in the timetable allocation, I had some of the most difficult classes. Right. Um, that was really important to me. It was really difficult because I was um, one of two teachers qualified to teach A-level there as well. So I had to take on quite a lot of the A-level teaching. Um, but I, I really made a point of trying to lead by example in that sense. Um, I made sure that uh, obviously I was working within the school systems that were there, but also trying to innovate them. You know, that's really important as well. If something wasn't working, trying to then go, you know, through the middle management process of saying, OK, well, there's some feedback here. This doesn't yes. seem to working. Can we change this? Um, I mean, trying to innovate school systems in a school that's that's really challenged and failing is a, is a hard thing yeah, to do um, and it didn't always work I think trying to be consistent as we know with behavior and you know I'm a parent too so I know about consistency um, in, in essence you have rules and you have boundaries and you try and go through this rep process of repetition where the kids are just bouncing off your boundaries all of the time until they realize they're there um, with a tiny I guess little degree of nuance where you have this little bit of flexibility if you notice that the situation actually demands something very slightly different and that's about you know your professional judgment um, yeah and are these yeah and are these um are these kind of departmental wide policies that you brought in or is this just something that was just unique to your class um a departmental and i think that's the re responsibility really of of the head of department mm. that you're you know you what you want to do is find this balance between consistency in your department and not wanting this sort of cookie cutter template of teaching that that means everyone has to be like you yes acknowledging the plurality really of different methods of good teaching um but behavior is is a sort of aspect of that where you know you have to err towards all doing the same thing yeah, I, th I think you're right. And just on this, I'm obsessed with this at the moment, Lucy, just because um, I've, I've spoke to a couple of guests. So Danny Quinn and, and Greg Ashman were two and, and Chris Bolton, in fact, two who favour um, kind of centrally planned lessons. So he whether it be the head of department and another responsibility holder, sit down and plan out uh, lessons that the rest of the staff will deliver for year eight and year nine and so on. Well, well, what's your take on that? Was that something you ever toyed with? Or was it something you believe in or do you believe that every teacher should be able to teach however they like. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, it's a bit more complicated than that. Uh, <laughs> I think that the model of collaborative lesson planning is great. And I think that's perhaps part of the success of what you're suggesting there rests on the uh, shared collaborative and combined knowledge of teachers when they get together and plan together. That's a really powerful thing. Um, I think where it becomes difficult is, I mean, I've tried to teach many a time a lesson that I haven't planned. And it's a bit about the sort of letter and the spirit of the law. Sometimes you're not quite sure of the rationale for different activities and therefore you're not entirely sure how best to deliver them. And so in that pipeline, you, you maybe get a bit of leakage somewhere. Um, 
the issue also i guess is you know we are in a in an education system where there is a, a tendency to tip towards prescriptive teaching certainly at this point in time um, and I think as far as my experience goes the further down you get in terms of uh, school's performance on league tables or whatever that might mean the more prescriptive um, I guess teachers are asked to be or, or the more prescriptive teaching happens because um, all of this creativity and imagination and risk taking starts to go out the window and that's really sad for me um, I mean I've had a career that's been you know, ups and downs and all over. But I've, I've had a lot of professional trust. And as soon as you lose that professional trust, my goodness, do you notice it? It's it's a miserable thing. And that would be my worry that, you know, are we, if we do that, are we sending the message that we're not trusting teachers? And, and sometimes it's okay to say, well, I don't trust you completely because you're at the beginning of your career or you need guidance, you need support. Um, but I, I think, you know, where we start to lose the autonomy and trust is where I would worry that actually we're not giving people the message that they're professionals and that they have the requisite trust and support and knowledge to get on with their job so you know i haven't really answered that question but i don't really have a, a complete answer to it i think sometimes it can work <laughs> yeah it's i mean it's, it's funny I'm, I'm on a bit of a transformation myself when i first heard it i thought that is net that that's wrong it just something about it felt fundamentally wrong yeah. but then the more i thought about it and the more i thought to what i was like in my first couple of years of teaching i didn't have a flipping clue how to plan a <laughs> lesson like I, I knew what i thought would work and all this kind of stuff but i i had no sense of how to pace a lesson how to structure it even how to differentiate just because i didn't have that experience built up from years and years and looking back i think i would have really benefited from from yeah. support so i wonder um, as and again we're, we're kind of getting off track here but i'm, I'm fascinated by by <laughs> by heads of department former heads of department how would you um how would you support less experienced teachers to, to help plan their lessons i mean i would say this because i'm now digging into maths education research but research-based framework would be where I would go now and the thing is you know as teachers as certainly as math teachers I feel like we waste an inordinate amount of time reinventing the wheel um, and even in departments you know we're constantly making amalgamations of policies from other people's policies and you know writing policies um, <laughs> updating policies seem to be a, a huge amount of work uh, that's given to, to heads of department year on year and I'm not sure how much of it comes from a place of thoughtfulness and research and design and how much it's just we need to get this thing done and I say that because you know moving from the classroom to outside the classroom and doing the job that I'm doing now which I'll get to in a minute the change of pace has been remarkable you know that's <laughs> you know if I'm working on something it's not for tomorrow morning generally um it's not for in an hour's time yes and I I've realized really looking back that the quality of the things I was producing had really suffered from that um, and often, you know, when we're planning lessons, we just don't have the time, the energy, the resources, the support to do a good job. So I think, you know, I, I think that part is possibly true. Um, but there are frameworks out there. There, There is a huge amount of good research on design of lessons and tasks and all of those things. And it's it's out there. Um, and sometimes we're just not connected to it. I certainly wasn't. And, you know, reading it now, I think, oh, yeah, I wish I knew that. <laughs> Um, and that's one of your questions later, I think, as well. But but there's 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 a huge amount of resources and support for lesson planning, particularly in maths, very subject specific, that would be really useful. So I'm going to talk about this later as well. But um, Alan Schoenfeld's Five Dimensions of Mathematically Powerful Classrooms, 
um, game changer, absolute game changer for me when I first looked at those. And I think that would be a great place to start for anybody starting to plan their own mathematics lessons. Well, fantastic. That's a great teaser for what's coming later as well, Lucy. I like, I like that. Um, well, I'll tell you what, before we kind of move into your, your job now, I guess since we're talking about teaching and, and kind of looking back on your career, now's a good time actually to ask one of my favourite questions. And that's, I wonder if you could um, pick a lesson that you taught in the past that, that went wrong. And crucially, what I'm, what I'm interested in is uh, what, what you learned from that experience. I, I mean, show me a lesson that hasn't gone wrong. It's <laughs> my first response to that. That's so interesting. When you first go into teaching, you have this, you know, wonderful conception of what it would be like. And um, and the interesting thing is, you know, after I think nine or ten years in the classroom, I was still to some extent planning lessons on paper that looked nothing like the reality. Because yes. in in the thing about teaching is the conception that you have of the lesson in your mind and beforehand and written down to some extent comes smack bang wallop into reality as soon as you have real humans in front of you um (laughs) you know i don't know why i was constantly surprised by that i just obviously don't learn very quickly um but i think that that gap that huge gap between what you expect and what actually happens and that's partly i think because we don't address it enough we don't have a chance to sit down and evaluate and think what did i expect versus what actually happened yes so once you start to do that your planning gets so much better once you actually try and predict the behavior um, rather than just, you know, I guess a, a lesson where you're planning something which you just send out into the ether, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I think was probably what I did for quite a lot of time. So I think for me, this idea that, um, you know, stuff went badly, the more experienced you get as a teacher and the more subject knowledge and pedagogical subject knowledge you get, the more it it rarely goes badly it just goes unexpectedly um and even then the unexpectedness can be within the boundaries of um you know kind of what you think maybe could happen yes um and then you're able to adapt you can be flexible you can think on your feet you have planned outside the scope of this you know discrete chunk of lesson and you're ahead of yourself and you don't need to panic um where it's gone particularly badly in the past, other than behaviour, and that, you know, I have had some dire behaviour, um, has been where something's, you know, changed about the way that people have responded in terms of what I what I might have expected, and I can't roll with it. I haven't I haven't been flexible enough to roll with the punches um, and pursue where they're at or um, go back, you know, backtrack and, and say, okay, well, obviously we have a, a problem here. There's a bottleneck further down. We need to go back. And, and I think um, not gathering good enough information about what pupils know already, you know, that's the obvious one, isn't it? And I think we've all done that as a, as a young and inexperienced teacher. Just ploughed on. <laughs> just blithely carried on and not taken anyone in the room with us or or worse i suppose one one lonely child yes Um, and and that certainly happened to me a great deal um i think one of the biggest mistakes i've ever made teaching for for a long time was to think if all pupils and again this is related behavior if all pupils are engaged if they look like they're on task and if they're doing an activity that is vaguely related to the title of the lesson then learning's happening. It isn't <laughs> at all. Um, and that for me would be the sort of, you know, that would that was the baseline that I was trying to hit for a long time. And now I think, well, and that's way below what you need to do. You know, that's that's uh, it's nowhere near. Can I just ask on that, Lucy? Because again, this is this is something that fascinates me. This, and it's it's only 
so this is my what 13th year of teaching and it's only recently i've i've started well i've stopped planning for engagement and started yeah. what i call planning for achievement or planning yeah. for success more well when and how did you realize that planning for engagement or kind of striving for engagement wasn't working <laughs> uh, one very particular lesson <laughs> All right. where uh, we were doing um statistical uh graphs of some kind what would have been pie charts and we were doing a project and um the pupils were working uh, i think using technology we were in an ict suite and they were really excited about the data we'd collected our own data and they were really excited about analyzing the data and they were drawing pie charts and things um and i was being observed uh and i didn't really have much in terms of behavior issues for the lesson um i they all handed in their homework which was complete rarity remember that um and i had some lovely conversations with sort of pupils one-on-one about you know quite deep ideas about different forms of representation of data and what that might mean and how to present data and communicate it and then i had a chat with the person observing and they said they're not actually learning anything though are they Uh (laughs) and i thought yeah, no, they're not. <laughs> um, and they certainly weren't learning what I wanted them to learn. <laughs> yeah. And it was just too broad. It was just too broad. You know, it was a sort of dalliance around the idea of data representation. And we were all having nice, fun time and it was enjoyable. And I'd kind of let them lead the way a little bit. And all of those things are good things. <laughs> but without the sharp focus and the pace, it's, it's, it's worse than nothing, you know, um, because... I'd kind of, again, fall into that trap of thinking if they're all engaged and if they're all vaguely doing the topic, it's good. Um, And it wasn't. And that really, really shook me up. I had to kind of sit back and think, yeah, I need to recalibrate here. Um, And it's not good enough. Um, And it's not good enough for my pupils. And I think, you know, thinking about that really sharp focus of, okay, exactly what am I trying to achieve with this lesson and how am I specifically putting steps into achievement? And that doesn't, you know, say you can't do project work and it doesn't say you can't do stuff that's enjoyable or let let pupils lead at certain points in certain ways. Um, But I think just being careful not to fall into that trap. And it's easy to do as well as a teacher because you're tired. That's the thing, isn't it? You're battling exhaustion some of the time. Well, I think, yeah, and I think it's it's even more than that. So this is one of kind of Rob Coe's poor proxies for learning is the yeah. fact that students are engaged. But it's it's the fact that it, it's visible, right? So you, you're there, you can see it, they're smiling, they're looking busy, whereas you can't see learning happening. And if anything, those those times where kids are sat there quiet and apparently not doing that, doing anything, they could be the, the times where kids are learning the most. So yeah, it's, it's, tr- it's tricky, right? And, I, and I, I certainly don't have an answer to it. And I think... This is the danger sometimes of, of lesson observations, and I know this is a bit of a generalisation, but especially when they're done by non-specialists, because you almost you almost want to demonstrate that your kids are doing something, and it's much easier to show them engaged in an activity than it is to evidence the actual learning that, that's taking place. I don't know if you've got a solution to that. Lucy. Exactly that, and that's something that I've I've been working on recently, or maybe about a year ago, looking at um, subject-specific observation frameworks because. I am increasingly concerned that we are suffering, especially in maths, but, you know, across the board from being observed um, by by non-specialists. And exactly as you say, you know, putting in place those proxies for learning. And actually, if you then go away with good feedback from that observation, you're not going to change your practice. Yes. Um, And that's a real concern. Um, because you can always dig deeper you know you always can and and that's yeah I think 
as you said that that um idea of being observed by non-specialists really i guess feeds into that worry that you just you just want everyone on task and engaged um and to be fair you know in some schools when you're starting off in the year that is your first milestone yes challenge but it shouldn't be the only one <laughs> no absolutely flipping yeah. it well i'll tell you what let's um let, let's move on now to, to your current uh, job lucy so firstly just tell us a bit how you got to where you are now and fr- from being ahead of maths and then just tell us a little bit about what 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 you do in your current role well i mean essentially it's the dream (laughs) (laughs) so i i after i was head of maths um i did some other work as well so i worked in primary school for a while which was wonderful really enjoyed that it was an absolute dream like i said being being somebody who's interested in a huge broad range of things um that was really wonderful i loved it um and i've been uh in fact i'm not anymore but an associate lecturer of the open university in mathematics for a, a while as well and that was really great especially my deep love for the open university being able to actually give something back was yes. incredible um and then i pretty much um left teaching on a on a low um, not the high that you know lots of people do where they say ah oh, you know i'm going to take a break or i'm going to move up and do something where I can make a real difference in in the area of education, I was absolutely burnt out and exhausted. Um, And I was really struggling, I think, to see myself as somebody even who had any value to the profession. I think, you know, it affected me that much. Um, And I, you know, I will talk about this to anyone because I think those people who are basically so beaten down by a system that tells them that they're worthless and they're not good enough um and that every every lesson that they teach isn't good enough and they're not marking enough and they're not planning enough and all of that you know that is a serious situation we have with a lot of teachers feeling that way um and it took me a long time i think to kind of realize that it wasn't necessarily me i was in a very difficult um almost impossible situation a great deal of the time um and that maybe i still had something left to give the profession i guess um and so i was freelance writing for some time which is a joy and a wonder but also uh not very stable i wouldn't recommend it um (laughs) particularly if you have children to feed um it's it's not the most uh stable of careers at all (laughs) um and this is really a lovely story because my original PGC mentor um, from way back when, or one of my PGC mentors, um, just phoned me up out of the blue. And we'd sort of kept in touch a little bit over the years um, because I'm going to mention her by name and she's going to be very annoyed that I have, but she is the most wonderful human. Um, this is Rachel Horseman, who was Rachel Reed. And I can't believe my luck, really, that she was my PGC mentor because she was such a great role model. And I just spent my entire classroom career thinking, what would Rachel do? Okay, do that. (laughs) Um, And that's rare. You know, the people I speak to say they often had mentors who they might have been great, but they weren't particularly easy to identify with or they weren't in the same style or, you know, they gave advice that they they just felt wasn't them. They were changing their identity, whereas Rachel um, always for me was the most aspirational, creative teacher. And I really thought, well, if I do a good job, I will end up teaching in the same way. So she phoned me up and said, um, look, we're starting this incredible aspiration inspirational huge project um and we need someone who knows about maths education who's been a maths teacher but has skills and strength in writing and research um and i thought well yeah i mean <laughs> sign me up and then she said uh there's a slight snag and i thought yeah there always is yeah. isn't it? she said it's, it's based in cambridge and this for me was a long way away <laughs> um and so i kind of went away and thought about it and thought 
you know, is this is this worth it? Um, I had a, a heck of a time getting to the interview because I was driving uh, you know, hundreds of miles that day and it was one of those where you very nearly miss it and then the person doing the interview had to go and catch a plane and, you know, it nearly didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of a nightmare. Um, and then uh, they phoned me up and said, yeah, you've got the job if you want it. And I thought, yeah, okay, this is worth moving for. Flipping heck. Um, and well, go on, what, what does this dream job in, involve? Well, so uh, Cambridge Mathematics is... Um, incredibly interesting and the more I'm involved with it the more interesting it is um, but it's an organization um, partnered with um, Cambridge University so the Faculty of Mathematics and Education uh, Cambridge Assessment and Cambridge University Press and the idea is to essentially completely rethink support for curriculum design in maths internationally three to nineteen <laughs> right <flipping heck. laughs> um, so it's huge and the the main uh, I guess um, concept of the project is to develop a flexible uh, interconnected digital framework uh, to help reimagine maths education. Um, and as we go, we're sort of evolving the, the way that we work, and we're developing a whole design process. Um, it's completely collaborative. Um, it's as non-commercial as we can make it. So right now, you know, it's, it's completely non-commercial. We hope to keep it that way. Um, we are working with specialists in maths education all over the world. Um, we're traveling, they're traveling to us. I'm talking to teachers, I'm talking to researchers. It's incredible. And, you know, I have the best job because I'm not actually designing the framework. Um, I'm working on communications and research. Um, and so a huge part of my job is uh, just talking to people, developing this sort of community of maths education, people around us, um, going out to events um, and writing, writing and editing. And it's it's a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. Um, and part of the joy of the job, really, um, is the team that I'm working with because they are exceptional. Um, so our director is Lynn McClure, who I think you've interviewed already um, and is a... Uh, just a tour de force in massive <laughs> just you know what hasn't she done um so currently on acme um used to direct enrich um worked with underground mass directing them i mean she's just she's achieved so much she's such an inspiration really to all of us um and then as i said i've got rachel horseman on the team um we've got real expertise deep deep expertise on the team um and they're such a joy to work with really um so, yeah, I mean, it really is honestly my dream job. <laughs> Flipping, it, it, sounds, it sounds absolutely amazing. I wonder if there's any openings for me. I mean, yeah, might try and dig out some scandal on you, Lucy, get you fired and get me in here. Hopefully. The only issue, Craig, is after I made that decision to start the job, and this was nearly, well, it must be more than 18 months ago now, um, thinking I would move very quickly. I actually moved last Friday. Ah. Uh, so I have been doing a grueling commute <laughs> about three and a half hours door to door uh in all that time and it's been Flipping a thing i've learned quite a lot <laughs> one can read research papers on the train so <laughs> luckily <laughs> nice yes, absolutely great no that that sounds amazing and that, that that brings us perfectly on to um onto research then because uh if you've if, if you've listened to this show or if anybody's listened to this show you, you'll know i'm on a bit of a bit of a mission to to read as much as i can and it's completely revolutionized how i teach so I, firstly i'm a i'm a massive fan of the espresso series um and we're going to be we're going to be focusing on on five of these uh, for the remainder of the interview but first ju just tell us a little bit about the idea behind that series uh, lucy and and we'll put links to where people can go to to yeah. access this but just, just give us a bit of the background on that. 
So um, when I first started this job, like I said, my part of my job is just to, um, you know, to communicate, to talk to a wide range of people involved in mathematics education. Um, and whilst we're still designing the framework and we can't give people that to look at <laughs> or experience or play with, um, I am tasked with the job of saying, well, what can I do at the moment? What can we produce as a team that we're able to do alongside framework writing and to some extent comes out of framework writing? So we're doing all this research. You know, we're really digging deep into it. It's, it's a really important facet of the framework that is connected to research. Um, and, you know, what can I produce that's actually going to be of use to teachers in this time? And so two things were thought of. One is blogs. Um, and, you know, again, working with the team I'm working with, um, sometimes I have to hassle them a little bit, but they're wonderful and they write blogs. So we, we produce one blog a week at least, um, which is not bad going really. And they're really, really good. I can say this. <laughs> um, and so we have um, that's one thing that, you know, people can read and make use of. And again, there'll be links to research in there. There'll be classroom teaching ideas. There are a really broad range of blogs. So we can actually have, you know, one day it might be an event report um, talking about, you know, some some ideas that researchers have presented at an event. Um, the next day it might be ideas for teaching a very specific topic. Um, I do these great interviews, which I'm going to plug, called Seven Questions With, um, where I ask the same seven questions, something like, what you're doing with this podcast um and i have interviewed some incredible people <laughs> i am absolutely starstruck some of the time um but you know our blogs are one thing and then the other the other side of it is uh lynn mcclure and i decided um and it was her idea really to to put out some sort of research digest to teachers and this was initially based i don't know if you um are aware of there was a really great booklet that was put out called recent research in mathematics education 5 to 19 um, and that I remember reading when I was uh, sort of learning to teach. And it was Mike Askew and Dylan William. Um, and they they did exactly that. They they filtered research, put it on two pages, you know, one issue, two pages, um, and really thought about the language that they were using to make it accessible to teachers. And uh, Lynn said to me, look, we, we could do something like this um, for teachers. I think it would be, you know, there would be a lot of value in that. And I just kind of jumped at the chance, you know, thought, yeah again this is this is really a wonderful opportunity to immerse myself in research but then actually interpret it try and think about the implications for the classroom and that's a really difficult thing to do <laughs> um, and I often tear my hair out over it somewhat but it's it's the perfect amount of challenge uh, in my opinion at this point in my career and it's it's a really great opportunity I'm really enjoying it that's great and it's um because i'm relatively new to like disgustingly new actually i'm annoyed at myself that i was so slow to pick on up on it to the world of education research and i'll tell you yeah. what there's two things i find difficult so the first is interpreting it and making it work in the classroom and the second and this this annoys me the most is when you think you've hit upon something and then you read another paper that kind of completely goes against the, the first yeah. paper that you've read so before we dig into the kind of five areas i want to talk about how, how do you get around that lucy so first how do you how do you kind of pick out the, the classroom implications and then how do you decide if you read two conflicting points of view how do you decide which one to go with well i have being out of the classroom the joy and the luxury of time um and that's one thing and you know i won't underestimate that that's 
great so i can really read those papers and dig into them and look at the links um another thing that i have is now connections and uh if lynn mcclaw doesn't know somebody (laughs) i'd be very surprised she always does um and so and again you know having the expertise in the team um if i'm if i'm not sure about something in the paper if i want to evaluate it I have a team of experts, you know, sitting around me and also on my doorstep and also, you know, in the end of an email or a phone call or Twitter. Um, I'm incredibly lucky. And, you know, that's that's a wonderful thing. Um, as to conflicting pieces of research, I mean, that's I, I guess I see it in my in my mind's eye. Um, it's it's a huge, um, I guess, landscape and it's full of small pieces. But the. The pieces aren't in themselves necessarily that important. It's much important to look, more important to look at the whole, um, and and it's you know greater than some of its parts in some senses. Um, and it's I guess this is the idea of of educational research meta analysis or any any research meta analysis. You know how do you weight things um, according to how rigorous they are, how important they are, how applicable they are. Um, and so, you know, when I'm looking at research, I will look at meta-analyses and people are doing great, great work. Um, you know, there's some incredible meta-analyses in, in education um, that are, are really helping to cut through that for people and balance out those effects um, and say very honestly, well, sometimes we just don't know because different things are giving different results and we're not entirely sure what the picture is underneath what you know what the the framework is underneath um and you know i'm not claiming to be an expert by any means in terms of you know when i'm writing these espressos but i will always if i can um read around and read around and read around so great big concentric circles um filter what i have talk to people bounce ideas off experts um this is you know, again, the thing I guess I've really missed when I was in the classroom, this idea that you can spend a great deal of time and attention and care on something and try and get it right. It's really hard to do in teaching because you just don't have the time and the space often. Um, and I really notice it now by contrast that, that I do a bit more. Um, and so, you know, I don't really have an answer to that question other than some, sometimes what you see inevitably will be biased. Um, I make it as neutral as possible like I said I I use other people as a sounding board Um, I've recently had the pleasure of having people whose research I have filtered often uh, come back to me and say I've read your espresso and I think oh goodness (laughs) (laughs) what's the end Um, but generally the response is yes you know you've represented what I've said quite well I I think it's a fair representation or occasionally they'll say you know perhaps next time you can look into this um, but, you know, I think inevitably recognising that, that we will have biases and, tr- and trying to be aware of them um, and trying to make your process, your methodology transparent is a huge part of what Cambridge Maths is all about. You know, we're not claiming that everything we do is perfect and, and never will be. But, you know, we, we're really trying to be as transparent as possible with that um, and inviting feedback. You know, that's a huge part of espresso writing for me. So if you look at the, the first ones, they look quite different. Um, because it, in the initial stages, um, you know, I didn't do very sensible things like having the summary box first <laughs> um, or having um, I, I started off putting all the references in brackets as you would with an academic paper. Yes. And the feedback was it's a bit dense. You can just put them all at the end. Use footnotes. And I thought yes. 
okay that's fine you know as long as they're hyperlinked it doesn't really matter too much um so i'm listening and i think that's really important you know i'm not claiming to say let's go and just just write all these series and and you know again put them out into a vacuum (laughs) just like teaching um actually listen to the feedback and make it an iterative discursive process Got it. Fantastic. Well, you, you've teed us up perfectly to, to dig into these. So just for the benefit of the listeners, I, I've selected um, the kind of five that kind of struck a chord with me most and also try to pick ones that we haven't discussed already um, on this podcast. So the first is an area that absolutely fascinates me and it's an absolute minefield, this. And that's um, the effects of attainment groupings on, on mathematics learning. So mixed ability. So go on, Lucy, talk us through what, what are the main findings on this? And, and in particular, when you were doing this research, what interested you most? Well, this is something that's been talked about probably in the last six months to a year, um, more than you know I would expect. Actually, it's come to prominence quite a lot. And actually, this espresso was written in response to teachers asking me specifically to look at this issue um, and that's something else really that I wanted to say on the podcast was you know please get in touch with me if there's an issue that you would like me to cover I'm very very happy to listen um, and I had a few teachers say this was coming up more and more um, that they were struggling with the the conflict of thinking somehow that setting or ability grouping uh, or attainment grouping as I should say in mathematics was um, they weren't quite sure about the ethics of it perhaps um, the effects and yet it was ubiquitous um and certainly in this country you know in the last 10 years or so it's the norm um and uh, i was very lucky to hear uh professor brecky francis talk about this and a few other people and you know i really thought okay this is worth digging into um and the eefs published a summary as well um and i think you know the time was ripe to look into it specifically maths um, and I think I was expecting very mixed evidence. Now, I was very careful with the language in the espresso. I, I, I always am. Um, and, you know, I will try to be as very, I guess, guarded and cautious as I can be. Um, and I've said essentially there's mixed evidence, um, which there is. Um, but really, there's no evidence to suggest that there is uh, there, there are really um, strong effects, positive effects of attainment grouping in maths learning and that did surprise me really um, so no let, let's just get this clarified because this this will be a bombshell for, for a lot of people yeah. so, <laughs> so no strong evidence of yeah. positive effect for attainment grouping because yeah. the 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 kind of i guess i don't know whether the the kind of consensus or the or the, the view i've i've heard a lot is and again maybe this was something you had coming into your reading on this that mixed attainment groupings is great for low attaining or low achieving students mm-hmm. setting is great for for high achieving or high attaining students mm-hmm. uh, was was that your view going in and could you not find any evidence to support this that's that's certainly i i guess to some degree the received wisdom um but maybe that's even one level up i think you know a lot of classroom teachers will say oh no it's just the right thing for everyone everyone because yes. it's what we've always done or because you know it's the right thing for teachers um but yeah i mean that was interesting and and even you know me saying that it's very it's very difficult to say with any clear conviction um there is no evidence because sure someone will find some <laughs> and yeah there, of course you know, if you read the espressos there's a few studies there that suggested there might be some small positive effects for certain learners in certain circumstances. Um, so, you know, I, I, again, it's always going to come back to, I think you'll find this a bit more complicated. Yes. <laughs> but my, my 
you know, my job with the espresso is to try and simplify things without dumbing them down. And essentially, you know, there's um, there's a few really good papers, um, again, written by Becky Francis and some other people, Jeremy Hodgen, who have said, you know, you can feel the exasperation come through in the paper. There's a lack of impact of this research on policy. Why is there such a gap between policy and research in this area? You know, why are schools still attainment uh, grouping in maths learning? Uh, you know, sometimes all the way down to five and six years old what's going on and you know I, I wrote um, a piece for the Times Ed about this where you know some of the I guess issues seem to be about political discourse um, and there are certainly some very strong messages that went out uh, you know from government about how important uh, setting was and you know that this was something all schools should be doing and of course schools then did it um, and I think this kind of policy practice research triangle is something in Cambridge mathematics we're really interested in um, you know where I think if you just look at classroom practice and research you're missing a bit you're missing actually a really strong driver of what's going on and that is policy and who writes policy and how do they write it and all of these things you know um, and so this I think that's what really surprised me was looking at this you know there's a gap but why is there a gap um, and I'm you know I'm not here to provide that answer but some people are doing some brilliant work into it, uh, of which Becky Francis one. Um, and the, the idea that, you know, for me, that the more and more that came through the research is even the idea of some sort of mathematical ability, which is very a very strong, pervasive idea in the idea of setting. It's difficult to define. Um, it's, you know, what what does it even mean? It can't be reliably measured. Um, it's an oversimplification. And I think grouping students based on um you know one piece of data for example what are the implications of that have we really thought that through um you know how effective is it but also even if it were effective in the classroom even if to some extent there were positive effects of that what are the ethical considerations um and you know what's really interesting is is i've just had a daughter go into and so this is really salient for me you know she's been put in certain sets for certain subjects and the expectation that comes with that, and I'm going to talk about expectation later, um, and the target grades that come with that and all of those constraints that they, we then place on students. Have we thought about that in detail? I guess that's the thing, isn't it? Um, and, you know, the idea that only certain types of student get put in certain types of set as well. So we, we find that there are particular groups that are really underrepresented in, in top sets for maths, for example. It's uncomfortable to consider, but very true. Um, and that came out again of, of the study that was happening in UCL. You know, they're doing some really great work there where they really dug into that. And, um, you know, if you look at socioeconomic status, if you look at um, all kinds of measures of a student's identity that aren't at all to do with their mathematical attainment, you'll find that there are some predictors there of which set they're going to go into and therefore what the expectations are going to be on their attainment from their teachers and you know the more you think about that you the more you start to consider there are huge issues here at work you know equality and equity and can, can i ask you lucy in, in your teaching career have you have you taught both have you taught mixed attainment and have you taught settled um because you know obviously part of the issue with looking at the research is there aren't many comparative studies because obviously policy tends to drive what's happening sure um and for me the best the best i guess uh comparison i can make is is 
revision classes because as a head of maths one of the things I used to do is come in a lot when I didn't need to be in um, and particularly in the holidays and drag my poor children in um, and I'd run a lot of revision classes and certainly I can remember on many occasions running GCC type revision classes with with pretty much all pupils who wanted them from you know your A star pupils all the way down um, and I, they were very mixed um, and there's certainly for me, you know, in, in my memory, and this may be somewhat rose tinted, um, a different vibe, a different idea. And, you know, your student who and again, by year 11, perhaps we've really ingrained some some of those ideas and mindsets. But your student who is struggling, who's who's maybe on roundabout grade E type material, who then looks over at you doing vectors and, and understands it. You know, what happens there? What's going on? And starting to dig into that with pupils, I think, was quite an interesting insight for me. Um, and certainly with the way that maths is structured and, you know, something we're looking at in Cambridge Mathematics, how is it structured? How is it interconnected? Is it coherent? Is it discrete? Or, you know, are we able to make connections? You know, you find that there are pupils who are really good at making connections between different areas of mathematics or really excel at one sort of um, representation of mathematics or area of mathematics um, and kind of just giving them a number, a target grade, a set seems to me to really narrow down all of that richness and kill it stone dead sometimes, you know, and I worry about that. Um, of course, there are implications to mixed ability, mixed attainment teaching, that there are huge implications and, you know, teachers rightly worry about planning, they worry about organisation, they worry about differentiation and none of those those things you know you want to just sweep under the carpet and say but it doesn't matter of course it matters but it's about best practice and the difficulty that we have is obviously because we have been teaching in this way for a certain amount of time um, we don't have a lot of resources and support to draw necessarily to help us if we want to change what we're doing um, but that is changing there's, there's a lot going on in that area and you know if, if people want to um, make a change to the way they teach of course they've got two major barriers and one is school policy um, and that's partly why research is so important because I think as teachers sometimes we have a responsibility to challenge school policy um, and that's tough and you know I'm not saying that all teachers should do it all the time goodness me um but i think there's a sometimes there's an ethical responsibility there um but i also think that the other challenge is obviously then anytime you change what you're doing in the classroom and anytime you change the structure of what you're doing you have to put in place a huge amount of resources and support and settling in period and you know there's there's always a, a period of turbulence and that's really hard to put on a teacher when they're already doing an incredibly difficult job um, so there's all of that really um, and, and so I don't think it's an easy question to answer at all you know um, kind of you know what's my experience and what would I do in the future but I know that I would give it more thought than I previously have yeah it's, it's tricky I've, I've been thinking about this a lot and god I, I mean I'm not an expert in anything but I'm certainly not an expert when it comes to, to mixed ability and the first thing I, I thought or mixed attainment sorry um the first thing I thought was well I mean this isn't going to make me sound good but I'm I'm, I'm used to that on, on these podcasts now the the um firstly every class you teach is is mixed attainment whether the set whether they're set it or not I think that's the first thing that needs saying and, but secondly, the kind of follow-up to that is, um, and I'll just be open and honest with this, for me, 
the thing that makes the job hardest is when you discover, when you're about to start teaching something and you discover a wide range of prior knowledge exists in the class. And some kids get it, some kids don't, some kids have misconceptions, some kids don't. And my naive instinct is that that is only going to be wider within a mixed ability grouping because it's already wide enough within supposed sets. And I just, I, th I think you're right. It needs an entire, it needs an entire shift. And I, I certainly wouldn't feel entirely comfortable doing it. The, the amount of kind of planning and differentiation has got to be, you're right, it's got to be the key to this. But then how do you decide? Because even, because I see differentiation done wrong all the time where you, you almost, you mentioned expectations. And as soon as you start kind of planning for differentiation and planning to give different students different amount of work, you're already implicitly putting those expectations on and putting ceilings on what certain kids are going to achieve. And I just think flipping heck, it must, it must be tough to teach mixed attainment all the time. And I'm going to go out there. It, it has to be harder, doesn't it? It has to be harder than teaching uh, sets. I mean, I think there is some evidence to suggest it might increase planning time, but that's obviously, you know, that you have to consider making changes will always increase planning time. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, there's some something else I mentioned in the espresso. There might be some more behavioural problems initially, and that's still sort of group dynamics at work. Um, but then having said that, you know, there's a lot of evidence there are social and um, equitable benefits to teaching. Yes mixed entertainment groups and I think we have to bring in the social and the effective domain here because you know something that really worries me is how many students we're labeling um, in a certain way who then don't identify with mathematics who don't feel like they're a mathematician who don't feel essentially like they belong in the maths classroom and that breaks my heart and setting really contributes to that essentially yes. if you're not in set one you don't belong here you're not a mathematician even some people who are in set one don't feel that of course because they're not a top of set one so what are we saying um and you know a lot of the research that i was reading was saying students in almost any set have negative effects on self-esteem and motivation um even you know students who are put in the top set who you might think ah you know that's a great um motivation for them they might might feel you know comfortable and and, and confident in their ability actually a lot of them don't <laughs> and they feel either under pressure or they feel worried you know, they feel that they have to live up to this expectation. It, you know, almost benefits no one in that effective domain, potentially. And, you know, this is, again, hard because we have some good research, but not a lot. Um, and so this idea that not all students get to experience the maths curriculum in, in, in a great depth and the richness of it, that's what really worries me. You know, because we also know that students in lower sets don't get the most experienced teachers, don't get the best resources, um, don't necessarily get the most um, interesting, varied, rich tasks all the time. And that's where I start to think, well, you know, that for me is a real issue. Um, and again, that's about sometimes we just do things the way they have been done for a while without questioning. Um, and, you know, that's for me, again, part of the place of research in education is to question um, but that's tough. You know, it's a hard process to go through. And I don't think all the responsibility should be on teachers to do that at all. No, I, th I think you're right. And I'll tell you what, I've, I've, ha I've had on my list of future podcast guests a couple of people who specialise in mixed attainment. I'm, I'm bumping them up the list now because I, ne I need to get I need to get my head around this. Because what I, my fear is, and again, this is just my, my own ignorance, is that I perceive if you were to say to me, describe a, a 
classic mixed attainment uh, group lesson, it would inevitably involve some kind of some kind of project or something like that, some kind of open ended task. My, my logic being that me stood at the front explicitly instructing is um, it's going to be hard for me to pitch that explicit instruction at the right level. Um, so inevitably, what I need to do is get the kids kind of working at their own level as quickly as possible on some kind of task. And that's my own completely ignorant, no doubt false way of, of viewing it. And whereas now, having spoke to a lot of people um, on this podcast and done a lot of reading, I'm moving a lot more towards the explicit model of teaching. I can see a lot of benefits and I'm just wondering, can I still get all those benefits in a mixed attainment group? Can I get more of them? Can I get less of them? I, I don't know. And I, I need to, yeah, I, I need to get to the bottom of this because as you say, if the research is suggesting that there are a massive positive benefits, I need to know how to teach that well to get those benefits out, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, this really crosses over, like I said, into social and effective domain and, you know, other things apart from just our mathematics pedagogy. And that's, it's a huge task to start bringing those into and also you know how early it starts if you if you're setting pupils from early primary school which which some some primary schools are to some extent by the time you might receive that pupil in year seven or year nine or year 11 it's kind of too late you know are you able yes. to then change all of those things probably not so i think again this demands a response from us as a mathematics community um to to kind of do some joined up thinking potentially you know to work together to collaborate because it's almost like one of those things with the tipping point where if we all do something similar, we're going to see, you know, a great deal more positive beneficial effects because we can all support each other then as well. And, you know, people will learn from each other and we can resource, you know, what we need to do. But actually, if, if we're looking at little pockets of people trying trying to make changes on their own, they're going to struggle. It will feel isolating and difficult. And, you know, you're kicking against the tide, essentially. Um, so I, th I think that this is, you know, a really salient issue in mathematics education at the moment and some really interesting things. But I do urge anybody who's thinking about it, go and read Becky Francis um, and a few of her papers on this. And there are some people doing great work. So mixedattainmentmaths.com. Have a look there. Perfect. All right, Lucy. So let's move on to the second of the five expressors I want to talk about. And again, this this is another one I've been thinking loads about. And I, I, I'm swinging left and right on this. So I'm hoping you're going to point me in the right direction. Times tables. Probably so, not. <laughs> um, what what have you discovered about learning and assessing times tables in maths? I am so continually surprised by how contentious this is. <laughs> Um, I mean, almost any math teacher that you speak to feels incredibly strongly and sometimes, you know, quite savagely opinionated on this subject. And the more I listen to them and researchers and anyone involved in maths education, the more I feel like we're all saying the same thing, just slightly differently. Um, it's so interesting. You know, I feel like this is incredibly nuanced. Where, where people are disagreeing is, is a tiny sliver of the Venn diagram. <laughs> but maybe I'm wrong. Um, I mean, the essential thing, you know, with learning and assessing times tables is the assessment part. Um, I think there's very few people who would disagree that times tables, to some extent, need to be learned in the classroom sometime. Um, I don't think I've ever met a mathematics teacher who didn't teach times tables or test them in some way to some extent. Um, the issue here is perhaps, like I said, quite nuanced because it's not really about doing it. It's about how external assessment impacts on what happens in the classroom, I think. Um, so potentially you've got this uh, tension between uh, rapid recall 
which uh, we know frees up short-term memory. We know that essentially learning times tables is a good building block for later mathematics. And that's, you know, I think most teachers uh, of mathematics would think, yeah, that makes sense. Um, but then that's not the end. For some people it is, I think. But, you know, there's a sort of second half of the debate, which is um, where we're looking at what are the other effects of times, specifically time pressure, times table tests, and focusing on times table testing, and um, perhaps to the narrowing of the curriculum. Um, and, you know, what might we be inadvertently doing to our pupils by doing that? I think for me, that kind of encapsulates the debate. Well, you so, see, well, let, let, <laughs> let, 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 let me just ask, ask you this, Lucy, because I'll, I'll tell you where I'm at with this. And this is the mistake I've been making for many years is that I've always known times tables are important and that, that's relatively obvious and, and Will Emney did an absolutely wonderful diagram showing where all the different strands of GCSE maths come from and it is when you start listing the ones that are dependent on times tables there's, there's flipping loads of them basically mm -hmm. so so kids kids need to know the times tables but ever since I've started reading about yeah working memory capacity cognitive load theory and all that mm -hmm. it's become increasingly uh, kind of apparent to me that it's not just kids need to know them kids need to know them automatically kids need to know them quickly kids need to know them specifically be able to recall a times table without it imposing a burden upon their working memory so they can free up that working memory for everything else so when i say to a child six times eight i want them to say 48 straight away whereas what i've kind of settled for in the past is and especially when i'm teaching um, low attaining students is i say to them six times eight and i see them kind of looking up to the sky sometimes i see the fingers kind of moving under yeah. the under the desk and they're, they're counting up in sixes and fair enough after about five seconds they get to the answer of 48 and in the past i've settled for that but now i'm thinking that that is a huge disadvantage and the way i've got my kids what i describe as fluent or automated their times table i think the only well i'm gonna yeah i'm gonna say that i think the only way to do it is some kind of time impose some kind of time pressure because i don't want kids spending five seconds thinking of the answer of a times table i want them to know it in under one second because i think that's going to be better for them later on in their mathematical development but then i hear that it's this timed pressure that teachers mm -hmm. have an issue with but i think you need the time pressure to get this automaticity or this fluency so am i going wrong here lucy I, I wouldn't say you're going wrong. <laughs> I would never say that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, to some extent, what what you're saying is the first half of that debate. And that's, you know, to some extent, yes, I agree with some of the things you said there. But knowing times tables, first of all, doesn't mean that the student's good at maths. Yes. I think that's worth yes, saying. That's true. It's a bad proxy for being good at maths. I agree. Um, I think sometimes people use a very lazy argument of saying, well, I know X, who's a brilliant mathematician who doesn't know the times tables. And again, that's just derailing to some extent. Sure, it's neither here nor there, really. There will always be exceptions. Yes. Um, for me, it's it's about the having the, uh, I guess, the procedural and the conceptual. And the interesting thing about your student who's counting up or who's using other flexible methods, that's not wrong. That's part of the structure of how how they're getting there. Um, and And they need to be able to do both. And I think if you focus on one, then sometimes and, you know, again, this is what the research says, perhaps what you're doing is you're forgetting about the other one. And so students who are struggling to um, recall their times tables, but can kind of get there a different way and it takes a bit longer. I, I think it's important to say that's not bad. It's just a step and an important step. 
Um, and we'd like them all potentially to get to the place where they can all recall them rapidly. I think there's some debate out there as to whether all pupils can do that and whether that's even possible or desirable. And then there's the question of what are the side effects of that if we're timing pupils? Um, are we then creating a situation where they are anxious, where they're worried, where they have this sort of performance issue with mathematics? Um, and then actually maybe we're doing ourselves a disservice because all of that focus on that is then pulling them away from other aspects of what mathematics is or could be for them. And it's a balance then isn't it of, of you know which do you favor and how and you know i don't think there's a right answer here but but certainly what i found in the espresso was a mixed approach to methods of recalling times tables sometimes perhaps timed sometimes not sometimes using different representations sometimes oral sometimes written sometimes on a computer really might help to broaden out that for people so that it's not all about can you answer these questions in this amount of time on this day you know right now which we know can be a serious point of conflict and tension and anxiety for pupils and, and have a huge effect on them later on. You know, we all have had that year 11 pupil or even an A-level pupil who goes white and sweaty and yes. panics as soon as you ask them to do any kind of mental arithmetic. And, you know, it's it feels like a cycle sometimes. And, you know, I'm going to talk about this when I come come to the, the issue on, on mass anxiety. But the cycle of poor performance and anxiety, how do you break that? Well, sometimes you maybe need to take the time element out for a bit, not completely all the time. Um, you know, there's that's kind of perhaps the suggestion that's being made there. And I think, you know, sometimes, like I said, there's a nuance here to this debate, which is quite a small nuance. It's just how often you do a timed external test, potentially, <laughs> it might come down to that. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's interesting this because, so I, um, a couple, it must have been, God, probably three years ago now, I, I did Joe Bowler's online Stanford course and I, yeah. it was it was, it was life-changing for me. It was an absolute game-changer and I've I've read all of Joe's all of Joe's books and, and many of her articles and unlike quite a few people, I, I'm a big fan of Joe, but I've mm -hmm. got a, I've got a bit of an issue with, with a a number talks so i used to be flipping obsessed with these so for listeners who aren't aware <laughs> oh god i was number number talk mental for, for a while so for, for listeners who aren't aware um, a number talk um you would put something on the board uh like i don't know eight, 80 times nine or something like that and yep. you would say to students come up with as many different ways of working out the answer to that as you mm -hmm. can. And then you'd have a great discussion and ideally you'd end up with five or six different methods on the board and it would it would show t students how you could break apart numbers, breaking 80 up into eight tens or halving and halving. And you do some wonderful things and it's all about developing this flexibility with numbers, this conceptual understanding and so on. But one thing I've noticed with these, and again, this may have been because I was doing them wrong, but flipping, I, got, I tried and tried and tried with these was the students who seemed to be benefiting most from these were the ones who had automated their times table knowledge because they could recall the fact that eight times nine was 72 and then they could start to pull things apart and add things on and so on. Whereas the students who couldn't, that was almost the stumbling block for them. They were having to divert, and I'm gonna, gonna use the working memory capacity again. They were gonna have to divert so much working memory capacity to the basics of what the flipping egg is eight times nine that they then didn't have anything left to to think about flexibility flexibly pulling apart these numbers and so on so i'm going to go as far as to say and i know <laughs> this, this this i'm going to get torn apart for this but we'll, we'll go for it anyway I, I'm, I'm, I think the automation has to come before the kind of conceptualization and the flexibility doesn't it or or again do, does the research not suggest that 
Well, I, I guess what's interesting for me is we're not actually talking about times tables now. We're talking about number sense and place value. Um, we we are, but we're still talking. The times tables are still fundamental to being able to 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 get that number sense. I guess that's what I'm arguing. Well, <laughs> I mean, the the looking at I guess earlier, early, even earlier than than times tables, we're looking at students' sense of quantity, their sense of measurement, their sense of comparison, and we we know you know as much as we can know at the moment about number sense that all of those things are really important for later. You know, there are this, this sort of progression, these building blocks, um, and yeah, you know what what you're saying about perhaps needing to be able to recall those facts I, I would say as well as I would not necessarily say before or after and I don't think it's particularly clear um, because that's something that you know we're still looking at um, but yeah I mean num- number talks are um, you know quite quite a popular way for students to as you say sit and pull apart and think about how numbers are constructed and how um, mathematics is constructed to some extent you know on a quite a low level and I don't see why both can't happen concurrently. Um, and this is, you know, now my personal opinion as opposed to a research opinion. <laughs> um, and I have seen both happen concurrently. And I think, you know, there's a there's a sense there that um, we're getting to know numbers like we're getting to know people. And people do that in different ways. And, and drawing broad conclusions about how children do that perhaps is a dangerous road to go down. <laughs> I mean, what, what you know, I, I'm going to come back to kind of what I said at the beginning about people's identity as mathematicians in the sense that, you know, I approach maths often in a way that is very um, odd to other people or very visual or, or a, a kind of um, intuitive way that, that might not make sense to other people. And um, I think our pupils are bringing a really rich idea of what numbers are, of what mathematics is and, you know, how they kind of negotiate their lives using numeracy to the classroom and really narrowing that down to a, a, a memorization of a particular set of facts to me sometimes we maybe we need to zoom out a bit first you know it's not again not even that we shouldn't be doing it it's just how we're doing it and and are we acknowledging a plurality there of, of different ways of, of of learning those um i mean I, I have this um this book that i tried teaching with as as a bit of um an experiment which is i think it's called harry's magic tables have you heard of it no i haven't no one else <laughs> it's really interesting so i was teaching um i, I had this sort of target that i wanted i had a, a class of i think seven to eight year olds i wanted them all essentially to know as many of their time tables up to 12 times 12 as i could by the end of the year um and i'd somebody recommended this book to me and it's really interesting it's sort of a rhyming visual book for time tables <laughs> right. each of the the numbers is represented by kind of a rhyme and then a visual metaphor. And I just thought I'll try it for, for a, you know, six months or so. And it was really interesting because I can't say it worked unequivocally, but I can say it worked for some pupils like a dream. You know, some kids loved it and it really made sense to them how they organized their brains because they saw maths as a really abstract numerical thing. And they struggled to learn times tables in a way that was meaningful. But suddenly you put it in a picture and a rhyme and it seemed to chime them all. Other kids hated it. And, you know, that's usually my experience as a teacher. That's that's how that works. You have to throw a lot of seeds for some of them to to implant, you know, in the soil sometimes. Um, and that has to be balanced with, well, I can't just teach everything 17 different ways. You know, it's difficult. And, um, well, I, I, again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with you, I think. Um, I'm just going back to <laughs> I'm just going back something you said before with like. I think surely it's desirable that kids know their times tables and re- can recall them yep. automatically. 
yeah, I, I can't argue with that. And, I, and even Jo doesn't argue with that. <laughs> she says it's not terrible to remember maths facts. Um, you know, I think she's been misrepresented a lot yes. of the time. It's a straw man argument. Um, but actually, you know, there's lots of subjects in which students have to rapidly recall things that aren't maths. And we don't time them on it. <laughs> and yet they seem to be able to do it. Yes. Now, maybe we should. I'm, you know, maybe there's that argument. But, but you know, in language we don't have that in the same way in history we don't have that in the same way um it's an interesting anomaly to me what why we perhaps feel that that's just a method of mathematical assessment that, that has has happened has come about and we're sticking to it <laughs> I th- no I, th- I think you're right and i guess my question's always been how do you move the child who's working out six times eight by counting up in sixes to knowing that six eights are 48 it like is it enough to keep allowing them to count up and just hoping that they make that connection and remember it, or or does some other intervention need to come into play? And if so, what is it? What what if it is desirable that they know times tables automatically? How how do we ensure that they do if we're not going to use timed? Yeah, well, like you say, that is a way of doing it, and certainly there's research that supports that that that's the effect of it. So you know, I don't think anybody's denying that. Um, but I, I guess it's about overuse to some extent yes. and you know again that's professional judgment isn't it um it's about noticing if some students are really having um you know anxious side effects from that and how we can then help those specific students because it doesn't affect everybody all the time um it's about formative and summative testing potentially um i, I think it's just about getting to know your students you know in in the in the good professional sense that we all do um, and trying to balance, you know, how we're assessing students and the variety of different ways and different, different, um, I guess, uh, formats that we're using to do that. Um, and I don't have an answer. You know, I, you can hear that I don't have an answer and the research doesn't have an answer, except that there is a sense in which if we if we use timed testing um, too much, whatever that may mean, we know that there are some serious side effects of it. Um, and we also know that there are stages to move pupils to rapid recall and 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 time testing does help with that so it's you know it's it's a balance to be found um and certainly using a broad section of strategies is is more effective you know we know that um peer discussion essentially the same sorts of things as number talks is effective um yeah i mean i think uh, a lot of teachers have some very sensible working practices around time tables testing and perhaps the way that we've externally assessed them uh, has distorted that sometimes Got it. Got it. Well, the, the, the debate continues on time scales. Yeah. <laughs> and that brings us perfectly on to maths anxiety. Now, yeah. again, I've, for a project I'm working on at the moment, I've, I've done a fair bit of reading and I found your expressor incredibly helpful um, on this. So just just talk to me, uh, Lucy, a little bit about maths anxiety. And again, what did you find out from your research and what interested you most about it? Well, this one was a really, really an eye opener for me because I wrote this and then quite recently after it, I met Sue Johnston wilder um which was a a a dream of mine (laughs) and she is wonderful um and she read it and we had a discussion and that was heart stopping as you can imagine (laughs) Um, but really um you know i really didn't have a conception of math anxiety particularly as a teacher as a maths teacher and i don't think i was alone in that no definitely not didn't know much about it the little i might have known would be quite dismissive I think, um, you know, the first things that I hit when I read the research was this is a specific effect. It's it's cognitive and effective um, and it's not 
it can't be reduced to just general anxiety or test anxiety. And I think those are all misconceptions potentially that teachers have. Um, and it's not just a proxy for low maths attainment. And again, I think that's sometimes how we might dismiss it. Um, and it's very easy to dismiss. And I tell you, the people that dismiss it the most, in my experience, are people who uh, have sailed through their mathematics career. Yes. Enjoyed and been simulated by and had the right amount of challenge by mathematics and just haven't experienced it. And that's privilege, isn't it? Because, you know, it's invisible doors that are always open to you and you can't understand why people don't walk through them when, in fact, they're shut to them. Yes. Um, and that's a really interesting facet of it for me. Um, and I, you know, I really enjoyed talking to Sue about it because she's really, of course, you know, knowledgeable about not only how it works in the brain, but how, how we might try and deal with it. And she really describes it as, you know, essentially like your brain freezing up and, um, you know, you just can't function in the same way. It's, it's, it's panic mode. And it, what's really interesting to me is I, I was quite old before I think I experienced this personally. You know, I, I didn't really have much of a problem with mathematics throughout my school career. University wasn't too bad because, like I said, I studied um, with the Open University. So I had very few times when I needed to perform mathematics in front of people. I had opportunities to study alone most of the time. Um, and... Uh, I wrote an article recently um, for Equals magazine about this where I said uh, my daughter asked me a maths question quite recently, you know, about a year ago. And I really experienced it out of nowhere. I clammed up. My brain went blank. Uh, I, I felt the physical effect and suddenly I couldn't think. And, you know, it's happened before, but maybe not to that extent. And I really panicked. And once you've experienced that, I think you start to realise, well, gosh, if this is happening to my pupils and it's a cycle, potentially, you know, there's various theories about about how it might interact with performance. But, but you know, there's a vicious cycle element there. I think yes. I've observed what's happening. You know, they feel bad when they do maths. They don't want to do maths. They're avoiding maths and they're performing, you know, not so well in maths. And, and what happens? And how on earth do you disrupt that? And how can we be sensitive to those pupils without saying, OK, well, you don't have to study maths anymore yeah, because they do. You know, so that's again, it's, I think to some extent for me, it relates to identity. It relates to who is welcome in the mathematics classroom. How, how are we structuring our classroom? Um, there's all kinds of really in, interesting, intricate issues that come into play. Um, but this this espresso was was, you know, really, really fascinating to write um, because we see gender effects, for example. Um, I was trying to find an estimate of how many people are affected by maths anxiety. Uh, and it was very difficult <laughs> because uh, essentially, obviously, diagnosing it's difficult because it's mostly self-reported. There are effects you can see in the brain. But mostly it's about asking people. And for very young children, it's hard to ask them the right questions in the right language. And for older people and perhaps adults, you have issues of, you know, they might not be truthful when they report effects. Uh, they might be ashamed. You know, shame is a big part of mass anxiety. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> different estimates suggest different things. But you've got a, a large chunk potentially of people um, some studies were going as high as 60% in university students. Others were saying about 25%. Um, this was, you know, around school age. Um, and some studies were suggesting as early as five. Um, Susie johnson Wilder was saying that's, that's commensurate with what she suggests in her research. So this potentially is this silent epidemic we've got in our mathematics classrooms. Um, and, you know, ignoring it is, is, is a serious ethical problem. 
and I certainly have been guilty of that in my maths career um, and the more I read the more worried I am about that really I mean, uh, just, to, just to say on that, Lucy, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you said this. I'm feeling a little bit better about myself now because <laughs> I, I, I was exactly the same. And I, I, when I was reading some of this stuff, and I, I, it was a lot of the links I followed from your espresso, my jaw was on the floor and I was just yeah. hit by so much guilt because I've just dismissed this. And this is going to make me sound terrible as well, but I've already, I've already, I've already knocked myself down with me uh, <laughs> insistence on time, time, time tests and uh, can't teach mixed ability. So me, me next uh, one that's going to make me look bad is that I just assumed it was kids who were bad at maths who had maths anxiety yeah. and whenever I'd teach a top set year 11 and I'd get you know and it, I'm, this is me generalizing but ju- just in the specific instance it was it tended to be girls more than boys some mm-hmm. of my top set year 11 girls who were like I hate maths sir I can't do it I panic all this I'd be like oh come on you're like you're targeted at a star you, you're gonna do fine on this you know not grow up but I was I was you know not exactly the supporting uh, role model I should have been because I just simply wasn't aware that as you say it sounds like an a- epidemic I think it's a really yeah. good way of describing it so what what can what can we do about this Lucy well what's interesting about describing it as an epidemic is some of the research that really um made me sit up and listen is is it's transmitted right, <laughs> so if right. you're a teacher and you feel anxious about maths and why wouldn't you know and this makes perfect sense you can easily transmit that to your pupils and yes. it's much more um, likely to happen with a female teacher, female students. Really and that's stereotype threat right there. And, you know, that is really important to think about because we know we have a pipeline issue with confident women in STEM. Um, and if we're just repeating that same cycle, we're never going to, you know, disrupt that at all. Um, and so, you know, this idea that students' first experience of mathematics is likely to be in a primary school if they already have numerical and spatial difficulties, which might be just due to, you know, the amount of early maths they've done before they even get to school, they're more likely to to develop maths anxiety. If they happen to have a teacher who is anxious about maths, and of course you would expect some primary teachers to be anxious about maths because it's not their specialism, we are then, you know, potentially transmitting it to them. Um, You know, we know that earlier teachers and, you know, um, teachers teaching maths to very young children might not have the resources and support they need particularly in maths what's happening <laughs> and then you know these students are developing and developing and it becomes a vicious cycle um and before you know it they're avoiding mathematics they are dissociating themselves from mathematics and they are feeling unwelcome and unhappy in our maths classrooms um and like you say it's about what can we do um and luckily there are people doing brilliant work on this and sue johnson wilder is one of them um so she's looked at this idea of you know it's a simple concentric um you've got an anxiety zone you've got a comfort zone you've got a growth zone um and even the very idea you know it's it's about fear isn't it you name the thing that you're you're afraid of and it becomes less fearful naming that maths anxiety is is a a condition to some extent and talking pupils through how they might start to deal with it and there's lots of generalized ways of doing that with sort of general anxiety that helps um and you know there was a great study i read with a brain scan where they did that with pupils um and it was it was really really interesting just just giving them very simple strategies you know some of them physical strategies like the way you breathe um and the way that you uh, I, I guess adjust your attitude and mindset before you start a mathematical task and awareness that you you might feel um panicked but actually you can deal with that there's there's ways to deal with it that helps um 
you've also got this idea of I'm going to say it sorry growth mindset which is really interesting because uh, you know I don't need to use the word growth, growth mindset I can say students who believe they can improve with practice yes, sure. <laughs> um, they're much less prone to math anxiety the idea that we can tell students that practice makes perfect that they will become better that essentially um you know we are not creating a wall for their um their attainment uh, it doesn't make the wall go away sometimes but it might help because sometimes they're constructing that wall of course themselves um but i think cpd has to be a place we start as well because if we know that this is happening to teachers and i've certainly experienced it you know in small doses particularly when i'm doing off the cuff difficult a-level calculations in front of a class yes um, you know, if, if we know that teachers are are experiencing it and to a greater or less degree, perhaps lower down with pupils who are experiencing, you know, what should be really fun, interesting, joyful maths for the first time. Where can we start with that? How can we better support teachers? I think might be, you know, one of the implications that's come out, certainly from the discussions I've been having um, after writing the espresso as well. Flipping it. And I think, uh, you know, yeah. I think for me, Lucy, one of the most important things you've said there is uh, again, just just being aware that it is a thing. And yeah. uh, I mean, is it a sensible thing to to make students aware that it, I mean, the reason I'm saying this is that one thing I've built into my teaching this year and based on all the reading I've done is that I, I want to make students aware of how working memory works. I want mm. to make them aware of Robert Bjork's the new theory of issues about how forgetting and retrieval are far more effective than just reading over notes and all this is mm-hmm. is maths anxiety something that we need to kind of add to that list of something that kids need to be aware of just so they're not sat there thinking oh my god what the flipping heck's happening to me here why can't i do this like is it is it something that students are going to benefit from being explicitly told this is a condition look if, if you're feeling this it's not not nothing out of the ordinary but here's something come and see me and we can kind of work our way through it yeah, well, I would suggest so. I mean, there's always a difficulty, isn't there, with the sort of, you know, as soon as you start looking up symptoms on the Internet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and we, what we don't want to do is, 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 I guess, you know, put suggestions in people's minds. And that's always going to be a difficulty. Um, but certainly the, the, the studies that I was reading suggest, you know, that if we uh, talk about control of negative emotions with students and i don't know whether you know sue i'm sure i'm sure we'll have something important to say on this but using the term maths anxiety makes a difference but you know uh, teaching students how to manage negative emotions is is benefits everyone there's no reason why you wouldn't do that um sometimes that's hard to find time to do or to dedicate energy or to some extent whose job is it you know that's also an issue isn't it um but if you if you talk to them about anxiety responses in their brain how their brain works what's essentially happening is that you know they are you know what it feels like from from the inside is that you don't have any space in your brain to yes. you know like you said it's to do with culprit and working memory so you're you're blank it's it's white it's gone um and you know they'll probably recognize that feeling it might not even be from mathematics it might be from something else you know i've i've performed on stage a lot and sometimes you get that when you try and remember words of a song you know if you're in the theater um, we don't have to make this particularly about maths for our pupils. Um, I guess if if we are worried that we're then going to suggest that maths is anxiety inducing more than other subjects. So there's that balance to be struck. Um, but certainly talking them through how their brain responds to anxiety and what they can do about that, 
I think must be of benefit to them. I can't see how it wouldn't. And, you know, we're increasingly having a society where people are coming forward with social anxiety, with all kinds of anxiety that perhaps we just didn't talk about before because mental health is high on the agenda. So, um, you know, paying attention to the effective domain in mathematics classrooms uh, seems to me to be an urgent priority. Got it. Super flipping out. We're doing all the big issues here. I like this. <laughs> and right, we're on to number four now. This is this is something I am absolutely fascinated about here, and, and that's that's confidence. The role of confidence in um, yeah, how how it affects teaching and learning and math. So yeah, tell me something about this, Lucy. What what did you discover here? I'm going to give a big shout out to Colin Foster here, who is an extraordinary guy. Please read some of his stuff. It's well, incredible. I, as a world exclusive, I've got Colin coming on the podcast in a couple of weeks. I'm a massive fan of wow, him. So, yeah, yeah. Good. I'll make sure I tune into that one. Um, yeah. So I, I read a paper by him um, that really, really started off a, a chain of thought about what knowledge is. Um, it doesn't get much deeper than that, does it? <laughs> you know, <laughs> when we're when we're asking pupils to give answers in maths and obviously maths is well known for having right and wrong answers. We won't go into that one right now. Okay. <laughs> Um, that when we ask students for answers, are we uh, getting a sense of their own reliability? Are they getting a sense of their own reliability? Do we know the difference between guessing misconceptions and misunderstandings? That's how Collins put it. And I thought, oh, how interesting. Often not. <laughs> yes. Now, you know, that's also behind why we ask students to write down working, for example, a lot of the time. Um, but increasingly we're testing them in ways that might be multiple choice that might be fairly easy to guess and answer um, and sometimes as a teacher it's very difficult to to get to the bottom of how students have arrived at an answer and that's you know some of our main body of work as a teacher now one way to think about that would be to ask pupils to assess their own confidence and i have to say when i first read that i thought oh, how interesting um because it's a one-dimensional view of knowledge without testing for confidence. It's, you know, you the, the idea of knowing something is almost meaningless without knowing if you, you know, how confidently you know it. Yes. <laughs> and the more I thought about that, the more that made sense to me. It's a lovely paper by Bruno that I read about that, you know. Um, and there's a reference there to the medical profession. So, you know, if somebody's going to make a diagnosis or give some drugs, um, they really have to be sure and they have to have a good sense of their own sureness. Otherwise, it's almost not worth them knowing how to do it. And, you know, the more I thought about that, the more, the more I thought, well, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because are we, I guess, um, missing a lot of misconceptions and guessing uh, guesswork on part of our pupils a lot of the time? And does that matter? You know, how, how, how much does it matter? If they're getting by, if they're passing an exam um, and we're saying, you know, you have achieved uh, whatever you've achieved, a nine in, in mathematics, but actually um, that system of assessment isn't robust in terms of we, we don't know how confident the student was. What's that worth? What's that, you know, achievement worth? And, and I took a good couple of months to get my head around this really thorny issue, I guess. Um, and then I started to dig into, well, is it effective? Is it a good sort of working practice anyway in the classroom? What are the other effects of doing it? Um, and certainly asking pupils to give confidence levels when they're answering multiple choice test testing gives them greater retention um, and improves performance overall. So that was really interesting. Um, and some study uh, looked at whether the effect is stronger if they assess their own confidence uh, after the answer is given rather than before. And it, it does. It has a stronger effect, kind of as you, as you perhaps expect to happen. Um, 
And then uh, Bjork did a study on looking at whether assessing confidence in multiple choice testing encourages learners to consider rejection of incorrect answers um, in a way that develops their, their understanding, their conceptual knowledge. And it does. So there's tons, I think, to be done here. And I'm really surprised that there isn't more research on this. And this is quite recent research, really. Um, and it's a sort of thrilling area to get into if you're listening and you're a math education researcher. Oh, I mean, this is this this for me is could be my next five years of working. Yeah. So I'm, I'm flipping obsessed by this. And the thing is, well, a couple of things here. Firstly, it's relatively easy to implement in the classroom, right? Like it's just simply asking students to give a little indication out of ten how confident they are on on any answer they give. As you say, I found it works particularly well with multiple choice with my my diagnostic questions. But anything, it's it's just the fact of, of giving them chance to pause and reflect on their confidence. And yeah. so firstly, it's, it, it doesn't take a lot for us maths teachers to do this. But the thing that blows my mind, Lucy, and again, I'm, I'm interested in what your take on this is or whether, whether you've um, read any more of it, is this hypercorrection effect. The fact <laughs> the f- this this blows my blows my mind, this. And uh, again, my, with my work on diagnostic questions, we could do this relatively easily. So for people who aren't aware of this, this is the phenomenon that if a, if a student is confident about an answer and gets it wrong, mm-hmm. then the effect on their learning um, when they're told the right answer is far greater than if they were less confident about that answer and got it wrong. Yeah. I, th- I think I've said that the right way around. Yeah, yeah. Um, they will be corrected after feedback if they have this this high confidence in their it, what's essentially an error. Uh, absolutely and again this is so, so firstly um have you read up uh, on this hypercorrection effect and secondly w- would you agree with me that again this is relatively easy to implement in just a even a practical straightforward way within the classroom yeah i mean the problem is that this is not there's not much on this in maths education yes. um this is a research gap so again if you're a maths education researcher go for it enjoy um <laughs> But I think the I mean, there's there's a real kind of intersection of lots of issues here, for example, with gender Um, so that there's a real obvious tendency for males to overestimate and for females underestimate in terms of confidence. And that muddies the findings somewhat. Um, And then we've also got this. uh, How public is the confidence assessment? Because that makes a big difference, as you'd expect, you know, as a classroom teacher pupils have this strong aversion to being embarrassed or lowering their own status in the classroom so the way in which we do it and how private that is will have an effect as well um, I mean the short answer to the hypercorrection effect is I didn't really go that much into it into the espresso because I have to make these choices and then yeah, of course choices about you know what I focus on and and what's the the meat of the issue and for me you know this this Dunning-Kruger effect that the idea that people, um, you know, the, the less you know, the, the less you know, you know, um, <laughs> um, that was for me, you know, something that I wanted to focus on a little bit more there. But I, I, I would be really fascinated to do more more uh, looking into it, essentially. Um, and like you say, this might be something that really changes the way we teach um, and certainly the way we, we assess or formatively assess. Um and there are various kind of models to do that. Um, and again, um, Bruno's looked at this sort of information reference testing. This was in the 90s and it's not really been picked up as, as far as I can tell since then. Um, and, you know, the idea that we ask pupils to um, weight their confidence assessments, we can award positive or negative marks. So I guess there's um, a precedent there for some of the um, uh, the maths Olympiad style questions do that sort of thing later on. 
Yes. Um, and that's always interesting when you when you talk to pupils about taking those sorts of math tests. And, and obviously, bear in mind, these are seen as extracurricular tests. These are kind of maths for fun <laughs> to some extent, you know then we there is an element of that brought in often you know people get penalized for for putting down an answer that is incorrect as opposed to any answer um which is the first stage i guess to to actually you know a, a scaling a positive or negative scaling according to confidence um so what message are we telling people's there that you know that's important <laughs> but when they when they do their you know good old curriculum testing that actually their confidence level isn't important and they don't need to to know how much they know yeah I mean I find this endlessly fascinating I've got small children myself and they go through this stage I don't know how long it lasts <laughs> um, of just being certain about everything <laughs> the time. and also they sort of have a small amount of knowledge on a subject and then they're the expert in fact maybe I haven't left that stage um <laughs> But that's certainly something that really interests me. How do we get pupils interested in assessing as objectively as possible the extent and the limitations of their own knowledge? Yes. And how much responsibility do we have as math teachers to do that and as teachers of any subject, really? It's, it, this is, you know, really deep stuff. And I find it really, really interesting. Well, you're right. But it, it has it has massive implications, right? Because any kind of self-assessment strategy or any anything like that or, or any any time we as teachers give control over the direction of learning to our students, the implicit assumption there is that kids know what they as, as you say, kids know what they know and kids know what they don't know. And it's very difficult to, to discern whether that's whether that's true. So, again, I'm, I'm interested. What, what have you come across any effective practices to get kids better at better at judging their own understanding? Well, really, I mean, the idea is that this stuff is quite new and not really implemented yeah. much. I mean, I, I imagine that um, this Foster's done more work on it, and I would I would certainly read the couple of papers that he's put out. Um, I'd be really interested to hear from people who are doing you know exactly this in the classroom and and how how that impacts on on um you know student achievement but also a range of other factors you know like gender disparity um and also i hate to say learning to learn because it's not you know very helpful <laughs> but the idea the process the metacognition of course of the learning process of going through stages of um you know the model of of um conscious uh, incompetence and unconscious incompetence and all those things that that I think referencing that with pupils must be helpful on some level. You know, I'm not suggesting we spend huge amounts of time on it or that that's the only thing pupils need to learn. And then we give them Google, of course, all of those things. Um, but I, I think being able to analyze the way that they think and how um, how sure they are um, has to be an important part of any subject. But I think maths may be a specialized version of that. Um, but that's just my opinion. And like I say, I would love to see further work on this. And I'm hoping that people will do some further work on this um, because it's an area that I think we could certainly develop in our profession. Yeah, no, me too. And I'll, I'll be sure to ask Colin uh, about this as well. Now, that's that's fascinating, that, Lucy. We, and that brings us to, to number five, the, the final espresso. And again, it's, it's another pretty big issue. This is huge. <laughs> And that is, uh, how can mathematics teaching be measured? So I'll say no more on this, Lucy. Well, I'll just hand, I mean, hand over to you. I'm kind with this one, Craig. <laughs> the, the difficulty often with these espressos is the the research question. And that's, you know, talk to anyone doing any kind of uh, reviews or anything. Finding the right question, narrowing the question down 
um, trying to find the right level of granularity so that you are answering the question but not going so deep it's incomprehensible yes. or you know glossing over important results it's, it's a really fine balance but how can maths teaching be measured is is you know chosen for a reason um, I'm trying not to place a value judgment on any of these models um, I'm certainly where possible giving information about how accurate those judgments are um, but this isn't about you know somebody coming to me and saying well I need to do an observation next week what should I use I have some ideas there are possible models there but you know I, it's very difficult the whole subject is difficult and the first thing that I wrote on this espresso is good math teaching makes a difference but it's hard to measure yes and you know almost all papers start with that caveat um and that's you know that's not just mathematics that's any any subject um but i think the first thing that i grappled with looking at this espresso this is quite fresh for me because i you know it wasn't that long ago is student attainment is a proxy for good teaching for a lot of people and that's as far as they go with it whereas you know you have to dig into that a little bit more don't you because what else is contributing to student attainment and actually turns out quite a lot and how do we measure student attainment and then once you get into that you're into value added models and you're into some quite sophisticated statistical techniques for how you're measuring because it isn't you know of course it isn't just how they come to you and how they leave um and what's really interesting is the more i guess the more granular you get the more you're trying to measure individual teacher effects the less statistical sense it makes and so it's almost meaningless data some of the time, you know, and what's what came out of this espresso. And again, I made a real effort to be to be neutral and to be as rational as I could about it. But essentially, a lot of information seems to be being used uh, to decide teachers fate that actually isn't very reliable. Um, so decisions about employment, decisions about, you know, whether teachers move up to the next pay grade or, you know, what they're being judged in terms of their their um proficiency in lessons appear to be sometimes being based on inadequate measures or proxies and that's you know not my language <laughs> um and that was that came through very strongly from the research so to me that's that's the first i guess uh, point of interest that we should be sitting up paying attention to and maybe by we there i'm talking about slt well, yeah, I, I, and just just directly following from that, Lucy, if we've got these kind of poor proxies, did, did you come across more reliable proxies? Is it a bit of a no-win situation? This how 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 <laughs> well, can we judge if maths teachers all entangled with each other? <laughs> yeah, um, and somebody, I think the quote I used was from Hill, who said it may be difficult to disentangle the effect of teacher quality and student characteristics on teachers' value-added scores, and that's just value-added scores. Then we've also got student evaluation, and we've got lesson observations yes. and you know the best um synthesis we've got at the moment is to try and triangulate those and that's yes. what you think student evaluation splits people generally you know they have a, quite a, a strong reaction to the idea of student evaluation often um but certainly the most stable measures that, that the research is providing at the moment suggests combining somehow in a careful triangulation uh, all those three measures. Um, and we know that the least reliable evidence we do know is is looking at lesson plans, uh, student work, marking and self-reports by teachers. Oh, so, again, geez. so that, that's the least that's the least reliable. <laughs> that's the least reliable. 
Jeez, I mean this this is interesting. This because one of my one of my future guests um, on this podcast is going to be Jane Jones, who's the the chief HMI um, for for mathematics teacher. And I I met her at a conference. We had we had a big discussion about this. And this was when I was doing all my reading about learning versus performance and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And I asked Jane, and I'm I'm interested in your opinion, having done the reading yourself, whether you can judge the, the progress students make within a lesson or within a period of a lesson. Um, Jane was adamant you could. Well, what, what's your take? I can't see how you can. No, me neither. <laughs> me um, neither. Tell, tell me why. I mean, you know, I think I had a good chat really with a few colleagues about this, certainly in preparation for this. Um, and, you know, my my instincts as a math teacher anyway is to say no, um, because that's just how I feel about it. But, you know, that that doesn't that's not. Um, you know anything that's always as we know just a a response based on instinct rather than actually the research Um, but really I guess you've just got a a moment in time Um, you've got limited amount of information Um, some of the information that you have that maybe isn't limited so you know the data that you're looking at or, or pupil books again what does that really mean you know is that a, a kind of proxy for something else that's a really difficult call to make and you know I'm glad I'm not making it <laughs> um, because it's, it's it's a perennial problem really you're trying to judge something huge and complex and interesting and also based on human relationships and all kind of other stuff and you're trying to judge it in a short space of time and with not much to go on um, and you know I think the discussions that, that we've had certainly amongst ourselves here in the office is that it's 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 almost impossible um, to make the sorts of judgment that perhaps were made in the past. That doesn't mean that you can't make any judgment. Um, And I suppose, you know, it's best encapsulated by saying learning happens over time, not in time. Does that make sense? It does. It it does. And I'm wondering, so, because again, I'm I'm torn on this myself, Lucy, but is there any point whatsoever to lesson observations? (laughs) I mean, Rob Coe would probably say not. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was uh, some lovely stuff from him. I mean, his his you know his uh, calculations of how accurate lesson observations are suggest they're pretty meaningless a lot of the time. And that's but that's using old systems of grading and categorisation. Yes. Um, I think you know we've seen a really interesting move from offset away from that. Um, and, you know, even as recently as uh, it was this summer at the Festival of Education when Amanda Spielman was saying she's tearing her hair out because schools are continuing to grade individual lessons yes. despite Ofsted no longer doing it and saying don't do it. There's this massive gap between, you know, what's being asked for and what schools are providing. And, and you've got to ask kind of why that's happening. Um, but, I mean, I think there must be value to lesson observations, you know, theoretically research based um I can't see how not going into somebody's lesson doesn't give you some useful information about the learning that's happening in that lesson and the type of teaching that they're, you know, that they're providing. I think part of the issue is potentially just how we do it, who does it, how trained they are. And that's part of what I've said in the espresso, really. Um, you know, we have instruments, but of course, the value of the instrument is, is incredibly lessened if you have no skill with the instrument or practice or experience. Um, and recognising that the instruments themselves are designed for a purpose. So I guess part of the issue is that a lot of schools are trying to use lesson observation as a catch-all for lots of purposes, as yes. you know, a kind of performance management tool, um, as a uh, trying to 
gather information so they're not caught out if they get asked questions as a way of judging teacher quality, whatever that might be, as a way of assessing subject knowledge, um, as a way of looking at student behaviour sometimes. I mean, there's all kinds of things that they're trying to do. And I think one thing that came through from the research is that the wider the, the focus, the more unreliable and likely to not be helpful that lesson observation is. Yes. And also that if if somebody else is setting that focus and not the teacher in the classroom who owns that lesson, then, you know, what are we saying about professional trust and autonomy? And also it's not as effective for that teacher, because if it's about supporting and developing their professional development, then, you know, if you're just coming in to make a judgment, you're not supporting them at all, are you really most of the time? Um, and the quality of feedback that's given and the model of how to give the feedback um can be you know very poor in some places and certainly i've experienced that at times um or inconsistent certainly i mean i don't know about you i've had lesson observations where i've had to wait a month for the feedback for example oh, yes. yeah, <laughs> um, absolutely. Uh, or you know i haven't been told what they're looking for yes and um we've had a very wide-ranging conversation about the lesson which you know wasn't recorded wasn't clear wasn't specific didn't give me any targets for improvement um, and, you know, I suggest those ones are, are potentially can be quite damaging to teachers and difficult because, you know, you, you spend a lot of time preparing for those lessons. And actually, when you don't get anything useful out, out of it as a teacher, what's the point? I think we're entitled as professionals to ask those questions. I think you're right. And I think, uh, again, e even worse, it's just meaningless feedback that's just vague, like uh, you need to improve your pace or you need to differentiate more or something. So I wonder, again, just based on what you've read, if, if you were to be head of department again at a school um, and you, you had to do kind of internal lesson observations, what would you do? What do you think good, a good kind of practice of, of internal lesson observations would look like? Or, or would you cancel them for your department? Well, I mean, the research suggests it's they can be reliable, uh, but that sometimes you need to have multiple observers uh, yes. to make that happen. Uh, and that's difficult, you know, pragmatically to organise. That's a logistical difficulty. Um, you've also got, you know, the idea that they should be used with caution and not necessarily the basis for decision making, but actually to support that teacher. So, you know, if you look at that model, we're, we're, we're kind of going towards the clinical model here, which is about the teacher owning that process, not the observer. So potentially you're looking at asking the teacher, you know, what are you looking for feedback on? Um, then you have a consultation, uh, look at the planning together, potentially. I mean, this is all really time rich stuff. Um, go in, uh, focus on a particular area. I think, you know, from what I've read, using an instrument or a framework specifically designed for mathematics education seems to be important. And they're out there. There's a lot of them. You know, people are doing great work. So I talked about this before, but Alan Schoenfeld's doing amazing work uh, on what he calls the true frameworks. This is teaching for robust understanding. And um, this was a huge, enormous project developing um basically sort of trying to condense down the essence of a good powerful mathematics classroom from huge amounts of other people's research and meta-analyses and you know it was it was enormous um and what he produced makes sense to me it really does and you know having read it through i think i would certainly draw on it as a head of department in the future so he's got five dimensions um one of which is the content this is just classroom activity structures um, and it's opportunities for students to become knowledgeable, flexible um, and focused and coherent discussions, which I think is really, really important. Then he's got cognitive demand as a specific dimension. So this is about 
students having opportunities to grapple with and make sense of ideas and their use. Um, and this is about the amount of challenge, essentially. Um, so there's your, your differentiation. Um, he's also got two which I think I didn't pay enough attention to as a teacher. <laughs> Equitable <laughs> access to content. Um, so he makes this very bold statement, classrooms in which a small number of students get most of the airtime are not equitable, no matter how rich the content. All students need to be involved in meaningful ways. That's really powerful to me, yes, to, uh, yes. in, in you know hindsight to my own practice. And then the, the, the fourth one, agency, authority and identity, is about um, students contributing to conversations about ideas um, and their development of agency. So who owns the mathematics in the classroom? Is it just being passively handed to them? Are they constructing it somehow? Uh, do they have ownership over the content? And this, I guess, is where it, this might feel uncomfortable for some people who, who aren't a fan of that student-led idea. Um, and then the last I mentioned is formative assessment, which is obviously key. Um, you know, meeting students where they are, giving them opportunities to deepen their understanding. Um, and I think those five things, um, you know, make a good framework for observing a lesson but i think i'd focus on one at a time flipping and is there um is there an easy link to find that lucy yeah absolutely um we can put it in the notes for the podcast or that'd be great uh, yeah, yeah so that's tru teaching for robust understanding there's also other things available so at harvard they developed the mqi which is mathematical quality of instruction that's a lesson observation instrument that's math specific at Nottingham University, they've produced a very simple pro forma for lesson observations in mathematics, um, which was recommended um, recently by ACME, um, which, again, I can put a link into. And then there's something called the RATE model, so Rapid Assessment of Teacher Effectiveness. Um, this is about reliably predicting student outcomes. So this is about student outcomes in mathematics rather than anything else. Um, and... Then the other thing, like I said, was student evaluation, which is an interesting one because people do tend to react quite violently either way to it. Yes. Um, and there are all sorts of thorny issues there about student biases and, you know, relationship issues that might get in the way. But I will say I've used student evaluation questionnaires uh, throughout my career and found them to be immensely helpful. That's very interesting. Um, and just just on, just on that, Lucy, before I, yeah. before I move on from this, because, um, again, that will be something, as soon as you're saying that, I'm, I'm panicking there, <laughs> thinking, flipping out. That, that's that's going to be a, a challenge, because it just feels, not feels wrong, that's the wrong thing to say, but it's it, it feels a little bit unusual. So if you found them useful, is there any particular question or questions you've asked that have been particularly informative for you on those student evaluation questionnaires? Yeah, I mean, I I made a point of asking students about once every half term for uh, anonymous feedback um, about things like pace and challenge and, you know, stuff like that. But also, I guess the effective stuff, too. You know, how how do you feel in maths lessons? Um, could I be doing something differently that would make you feel better about maths? That's always the question that yes. I found really interesting because sometimes the children that were really turned off would just say no. And I sort of thought, well, you know, I'm really sad that you're turned off by maths, but at least it's not me. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, yes. And, you know, I'll try harder. Um, but then you get a lot of people saying, um, or, or you'd, you know, you'd ask some questions about, um, Am I doing anything that's that's uh, a barrier to your learning? You can ask that sort of question, and they, they, mine, mine would often say, "You're too enthusiastic, or you're too noisy," <laughs> you know, and all of these things. You know, I thought I was being a good role model by being yes. in maths, but sometimes I'm just over-egging it, <laughs> and I just need to calm down. I'm actually distracting them from their work. 
you know, that's a really interesting bit of feedback. Um, and, you know, you still get kids who will, will write things like, I, I hate you and you're awful. Spinning <laughs> my, my life. <laughs> and, and that's the start of a conversation. You know, that isn't just, well, we'll file that in the bin and yeah. you know, that's the end of it. That that kid comes in my office and we, we talk it out. <laughs> yes. Um, and that's, again, you know, you need time to deal with that. But I really want to know if, if a child feels like that and sometimes they do and I don't know it you know you think you, you think you've kind of got a handle on it and you haven't yes and um, sometimes it's the quiet ones who you think are okay and they're not they're, they're really miserable <laughs> that's very interesting and, and again just just on this because this is something I th- I'm going to make a, a note to definitely do um, is is it is it a couple of times a year you do this or is it well, does I it work do particularly it well at half term um, half term right then I'd also do this is probably quite controversial uh, every term we'd have a sort of round table Chinese parliament discussion Flipping, oh geez. <laughs> that's tough but you know I felt those were so helpful and especially especially the classes where you went into them and they'd been really happy with their other teacher and they hate you right. or they'd had behavior problems and they just weren't meshing as a, as a group because often what would come out wasn't about you it was about each other right um and that, you know, that takes a lot of effort and a lot of energy and sometimes it collapses into chaos and, you know, all of that. But just saying everybody in the classroom has the opportunity to have a voice and give feedback. We're not going to take offence. I'm certainly going to model not taking offence. I'm interested in your honest opinion. Be yes. honest. How often are we honest with each other in our math classroom? Oh, I don't know. Um, and I'd get, you know, if there was any other adult involved in LSA or, you know, TA or, or any other adult that I was sharing the class with I'd try and get them involved we just sit down and say you know what's going wrong and what's going right and I might say you know it's that that child is is a barrier at the moment because they're doing x y and z and the whole class would go yeah stop it um or you know the child would come back and say but I'm doing this because you're doing that and I'd go oh (laughs) okay and and you know it's certainly not the, the the solution to all your problems but acknowledging that you're a human they're a human sometimes that goes some way to helping um it certainly has with me in the past um and you know never being afraid to say be honest with me be honest with me yes i'm 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 here for that because i you know i give you feedback all the time and sometimes it's harsh and sometimes it's critical and i have to be able to take it back that's interesting right i'm doing that i'll I'll let you (laughs) when i'm in tears in a few months time i'll give you i'll give you a call call. that's that's perfect right well let's uh, say let's move and that was that was fascinating those five expressions and as i say we'll put a link to the uh the lesson observation stuff you spoke about and a link to all the expressos there and Um, someone wants to talk to me about espressos you know i'm really really open to that give me some feedback or give me some ideas and what you'd like me to look at in the future go for it Perfect. Fantastic. Um, well, let's move now to, to the final things I'm going to ask you, which are just your reflections, Lucy. So I want to start with um, what, what would you say is the most important piece of educational research you've ever seen? I mean, this is a ridiculous question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm full of them. I'm full of them. <laughs> How on earth can you narrow it down? Um, I mean, I find um, the the ideas that I've read about expectancy effects really important and you know i've had to pick something here because there's so many important things yes um but you know there was some studies done and this is old stuff now studies done in the 60s um where people were handling rats in a maze and just by telling the handlers that the rats were dull or bright you know smart or not smart the rats solved the maze quicker or slower you are joking no and you know this is 
something that translates into the classroom because the same researchers, this is Rosenthal, went into the classroom and did it with pupils. You know, this is in the 60s where you didn't have quite the ethical considerations (laughs) (laughs) that we have now. Luckily, we do. Um, But, you know, telling teachers that students were bright or had a high IQ or what I think the phrase they used were about to bloom. Isn't that lovely? Um, (laughs) Of course, it affects student achievement, student attainment. And our expectations as teachers really influences what happens in the classroom. And we know this. And, you know, what are we doing about it? There's there's a huge amount of inequality in our classrooms that is just systemic, endemic, built into the systems that sometimes we're just not questioning. And, you know, it's a huge task. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting it's up to individual teachers constantly to tackle this on their own. But, you know, can we can we think about this a bit more? Can we formulate a response to how we're dealing with this? Because we're just perpetuating a cycle sometimes for our pupils. And I think they deserve better. Um, but yeah, that that piece of research, there's there's plenty out there. Go and go ahead and read. Um, there's a lovely radio program about it. Um, I, I would highly recommend it. So Rosenthal and Foda, I think, was the original study, 1963. And now, now you know about that, Lucy. Like, how would that change what you would do as a maths teacher? I gave a presentation on this recently, and I said if I had my time again, <laughs> and I might, well, you never know, I would really make a conscious effort. And my goodness, how hard! is this i understand <laughs> to treat every single people in my classroom as a potential future colleague ah, as a potential okay. future math teacher because i think we have this sense of community that as mathematicians or as math educators we're quite good at because actually we're quite beleaguered in the world we we have a lot to battle against as <laughs> you know people trying to promote our wonderful subject once you love it you love it if you don't love it it's hard to see sometimes and we're, we're constantly on this you know sisyphean task of trying to persuade everyone else that the thing that we're doing has value and is interesting and, and joyful and all of those things and creative and so we're quite good at banding together but the problem with that, of course, is you're also excluding other people sometimes. And I don't know how early we're starting to do this and what the effects are of, you know, inclusive, exclusive identity of a mathematician or a math teacher. This is what I'm starting to look at at the moment. And I'm pretty sure that we will have an inner prototype of what a mathematician or a math teacher looks like. And sometimes we're not challenging that enough and sometimes it's becoming a stereotype. And those those expectancy effects, I imagine, you know, are, are quite significant. And that has a huge effect on, you know, gender um, and ethnicity and all of those things. And we're just starting to dig into that now as a math community. And I'm really, really excited that I can help be a part of that. Really, I'll come on to that with my big three, I think. Yeah, fantastic. That's absolutely fascinating. That. And that, well, that, that leads to the next question, Lucy. Yeah. Which, what would you say the most surprising piece of research you've ever seen is? Hmm. I mean, often bits of research surprise me (laughs) but that's that's the interface between your experience and you know wider uh more observational data i guess sometimes you buck the trend sometimes you don't and that's you know as somebody looking at research you have to learn to put that aside you know it doesn't matter what my experience is sometimes because that's a very, very narrow view of what's happening in the world. And that's why we do research, you know, to some extent, to, to, to collect more information than we're able to gather individually as a yes. person. Um, but I guess what what I wanted to say about that, about that question specifically, is we place too much value on surprising pieces of research. And what we don't perhaps value enough is shoring up research. 
research. And this is, you know, an issue with publishing bias and all kinds of stuff that we want studies that replicate things. We want studies that have, you know, null effects that don't find any effects at all. We want studies that the researcher says we think this is going to happen and it does. And because they don't have glamour or, you know, pizzazz for a press release, they might not get the attention they deserve. And when I was considering this question, I thought about that a lot and I thought, yeah, I don't I don't want to put value on surprising research. I want to put value on the whole thing, the whole beautiful web of in, interconnected knowledge and, and body of, of, you know, really interesting knowledge that we're building up here and not single out one piece and say, well, that fit in a different place than I thought. Because actually, you know, that's putting too much emphasis on one contribution when the whole thing is more important. Got it. I'll, I'll give you. Uh, yeah, I'll give you. You've come up with. <laughs> you haven't answered many of my questions no, in I a straightforward way, but I'll, I'll I'll take that. I'll take that. Customer. <laughs> what about what about this one then? What books would you recommend teachers should read? Let's say that one more time. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, what books would you recommend teachers should read? Oh, I love books. <laughs> I could do this forever. I mean, I you know, I I was that child that was absorbed in a book and forgetting where they were all day long, and you know. I, I, I just I just love to, to find a quiet corner and read a book. And that's, again, a, a joy of this job that, you know, I, that's actually part of my job. <laughs> yeah, nice. I, I'm so privileged to be able to do that. Um, I think uh, one one book or um, certainly one piece, uh, it's a book and you can also download it, it's a PDF, uh, that's been really important to Cambridge Mathematics is called On the Shoulders of Giants. Um, and it's edited by uh, Lynn Arthur Steen. Um, and... She calls it a vision of the richness of mathematics and it's a sort of looking back, looking forward, just a beautiful, beautiful piece about what mathematics is and could be. Um, and it's been a really, really uh, important piece for, for the work that we're doing here at Cambridge Mathematics. So I would say go and have a look at that. It's, it's a wonderful thing. It's it's um, really thought provoking about the the sort of development of mathematical ideas and how and where that might start in our pupils um and yeah it's had a, a quite a lot of influence on what we're doing here um i think if i was to um to be selfish i would say that the thing that's really the book that's really um influenced my math teaching and this might be a surprise is is flatland <laughs> oh yes um so that's uh, edwin abbott uh this romance of many dimensions um, and it's it's a it's an interesting volume. It's written in some quite tricky language at times, and it's of its time. Um, but it's a it just opened my mind to how you know mathematics could coincide with literature, how we could create narratives around maths. Um, I've read it. To, I, I think I can say this now. Every class I've ever taught, um, <laughs> and I not just read it, but you know used voices. St- striding up and down tables you know the full works because i strongly believe that you know a bit of drama in maths is a wonderful thing um maybe that's why my pupils get distracted a bit um but i i I just love it i just love the possibilities and the way that you know pupils just kind of go what hang on whoa this is like political it's you know visual it's about how many dimensions our world has has and how many it could have and it just it just blows your mind um and they they take a while to get used to the language but it's sort of like shakespeare i feel like once you get a feel for it it's it's a beautiful thing um so you know i think if you haven't read spread flatland give it a go it's um it's quite a short read but yeah quite quite um eloquent in in terms of its language um uh, any other any other book I'll, I'll let you have another if you want i'll have one more and that's um 
That's Alex Belos and Ed Harris's Visions of Numberland, which is not a book in the traditional sense. It's a colouring book. I am so thrilled that there are people out there doing amazing visual mathematics work. And these guys are doing it. And I love this book with all my heart. It's pictures of maths and pictures of some surprising and interesting and actually quite cutting edge math, some of it. Um, and you can sit and colour it and not care about that. Or you can read up on all the maths and, you know, they do a really good job of balancing some mathematical content with some images. Um, and you can go away and, you know, um, either listen to them speak or, or do some further research on it. But it's, you know, it's again, it's it warms the cockles of my heart that we have people that are really stretching the boundaries of what we call mathematics and what's possible to include in that definition and and catering for people like me, I guess, which is a selfish thing where, I love pictures of maths. Pictures of maths really, you know, get me excited and putting colour in and, and looking at algorithms for colouring. And, you know, some of them are, are really about mathematical processes rather than pictures. It's it's a wonderful thing. So I, I absolutely love that book. I'd highly recommend it. That's a really interesting choice. That's, that's, that sounds amazing. <laughs> and I'll, I'll put links to all those. I've got a special page where all podcast guests who recommend books, it goes on there. So there'll, there'll be links to those. They're great choices. And um, well, last question for me, Lucy, before I hand over to you for your big three. And that's it's a big one, really. And that's because you're in quite a, a unique position here in that you, you've been a teacher, you've been a head of maths and you've had time out of the classroom, which has been dedicated to thinking about maths education and, and reading and so on. So I wonder, with all the knowledge that you've accumulated, what, what do you wish you'd known when you first started teaching that you know now? I, I felt like actually, unlike some of them, this is quite an easy one to answer for me. It's about the power of networks. Um, so much of teaching for me as an experience was isolating and um lonely difficult um and i questioned myself you know i think once you start to dig down into what knowledge is and how you uh, you know inspire transmit guide students to to find knowledge and you know all of those things if you if you are struggling with that alongside the day-to-day -day of actually being you know doing the daily grind of teaching you need a sounding board, you need trusted colleagues, you need um, sometimes people who have been there before you or are coming there after you. Um, you need people who are doing the same as you, um, but maybe in a slightly different context. And you need people to reassure you that you're not insane. <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> and, you know, I'm lucky that I, to some extent, have found that. And um, I, I, I honestly don't know what I would do without someone. I'm going to I'm going to name check one other person. And that's um, uh, Jean-Louis Duteau, JL, who's uh, my writing partner in, in um, a huge project, which I haven't mentioned yet, um, <laughs> which is the book that's coming out in January uh, called Flip the System UK. And he and I were in a special measure school together and uh, I cannot really explain some of the dire times that we went through together <laughs> and uh, he was uh, teaching drama at the time and I was teaching I was head of mathematics and um, I would drop into his lessons and he would drop into mine and we gave each other CPD we just said I'm just going to pop in is that all right and I'd come in and I'd, I'd you know tell him all the things that I saw that were amazing about his lesson and he'd do the same to me and it was incredibly helpful um, he's an amazing teacher you know I'd, I'd come in at the end of the day and complain oh, I've got all these kids and they won't do anything and it's really hard for me to, to you know, sort their behaviour out. And then I'd go into his lesson and he didn't have chairs or desks. He had one big hall. And, you know, I thought, wow, that's, you know, what am I moaning about? <laughs> um, it's a completely different proposition. Um, and so through him and through meeting lots of people, um, and I'm going to, you know, talk about Twitter as well there, I guess, as, as uh, one, one way to do that. I've developed these networks that are really powerful, really, really powerful. You know, it's about finding information sometimes um, and research and knowledge, but also support. 
um, and being able to ask questions of people, you know, in, in real time sometimes, get a speedy answer, you know, when you're like, oh, I need that thing for that lesson. It's yes. a resource. Um, you know, so someone like, like Joan Morgan, who does, you know, incredible work helping teachers find resources when they need them, which is such an important thing. Um, she's great. You know, if I'd have had her 10 years ago, <laughs> I would have made a massive difference. Um, yes. uh, I think, I think finding finding your community but then finding your tribe within that community who also really think like you and you trust is is huge and and that's so important to a teacher that's a really good answer i like like that one that's absolutely superb that which uh, which brings us to the end now lucy so this is your your time to hand over to you for your big three so what three they could be websites blog posts whatever you want and uh would you recommend our listeners check out and i will link to these on the podcast Thank page you very much. i could not possibly let this one go without recommending my own um <laughs> or not just mine but our whole team so Cambridge Mathematics which is cambridgemaths.org and specifically two areas I'd say look at now so Mathematical Salad which is our selection of blogs um, check those out like I said there's a new one out every week and I linked those on our, our Twitter feed so you're welcome to, to follow us on Twitter or uh, join our newsletter sign up which gives you a bit of a digest of what we've been doing um, and the espressos which are on there as well so the espressos are there on PDF form um, and all of the links to research are hyperlinks you can click through to the actual papers um, and they're printable two pages with classroom implications. Um, so that's our site at the moment and I would suggest checking it out. <laughs> of course. Um, the second one I'm going to talk about, I don't know how many people know about this, but it's uh, called Chalk Dust magazine. No, no, tell me more. Um, and this is, uh, they have a site, but they also have a physical printed magazine and uh, it's uh, I think the tagline is about mathematical curiosity, which I you know I already love. <laughs> Once I read it, I was hooked. Okay, so imagine a, a magazine that's about maths. Some of it's quite hard. Some of it I don't, don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> Some of it is wonderfully light, and I do understand. And almost all of it is peppered with actual funny jokes. <laughs> oh, I'm in. I'm um, in. You, you've sold. <laughs> there's me. a cartoon. I mean, it's it's brilliantly funny um it kept me company for an hour on a train um and i was at completely hooked um and the, they're doing amazing work because not only have we got this you know really um self-aware humorous interesting well-written i guess quite um modern and contemporary magazine they're also doing brilliant work so for example i mentioned earlier we've got um they're, they're promoting at the moment black mathematicians month which is october this year and they're doing brilliant work. They're talking about representations of mathematicians. Um, they're thinking carefully about how they can use that platform to lift other people up to be visible. You know, we need more visibility of, of certain um, groups who might have been um, disadvantaged in the past in our community. And they're yes. doing really important work with that. So I fully support that. Um, and you can also write for them. So if anybody is interested in writing for them, you can talk to them. And I know this because I've done it. Um, and they're very helpful and lovely people. Um, and you can send them a submission and they might print it. Um, yeah. So Chalk Dust Magazine, check them out. Uh, see like if you can get hold of the copy because they're, they're absolutely brilliant, doing a fantastic job. And then my... The final one, um, my my last one to check out, I'd suggest is uh, the A Periodical, um, which is uh, mostly online magazine blog type thing. But they do this wonderful thing called the Carnival of Maths, 
um, which I don't know if you've heard of, but I mean, with the name, I'm already hooked. <laughs> um, this is run by Katie Seckles, and I don't know if you know her, but she is doing amazing work. I mean, lots and lots of people in the you know mass communication community. I can't name check them all, but she's one who I really admire and um, is really working hard on looking at representations of mathematicians because you know she's female and she's really funny and interesting and she's making YouTube videos and um, you know she's somebody I look at and think yeah you know I can I can see that I can see myself in you you're a great role model and they do um, this uh, carnival of maths which is hosted at different people's sites you can uh, volunteer to host it if you if you have a site that's anything to do with maths or maths education and they're really inclusive so they include any blog posts that are about mathematics or maths education or sort of anything vaguely related and they do a big roundup and then whoever's hosting it you get to write the roundup and it's really really fun I did it um, a couple of months ago for Cambridge Mathematics um, and then this whole idea that we're here to celebrate maths and it's a carnival um, and, you know, we have this monthly parade of really cool math stuff. I'm so behind. I think that's a lovely idea. <laughs> um, and if you look at the AP article, they also do loads of other stuff. So links to resources and interesting blogs. And, you know, they're really good at keeping up to date on that site. So I'd highly recommend that one as well. Um, and really, I'm just sorry. I can't, you know, recommend more things because there's so much, <laughs> there's so much to recommend in so little time. Um, but I would like to finish by saying we, we do have an extraordinary community. And I'm only really finding this now I'm out of the classroom, which is the sadness of it, you know, of mathematicians and math educators and math communicators and math researchers and whatever people call themselves. And sometimes we're just not joined up enough. You know, we're not we just don't know. Um, we haven't got the awareness of what other people are doing. And I think, like I said before, with the building professional networks, we have this opportunity to, to link up a bit and and utilize the strengths of other people and be much more inclusive in our definition of what we are as a community. And I'm, you know, really excited about that. I think there's enormous potential in that. Fantastic. There well there are three three excellent choices <laughs> and a little bonus one at the end. That's superb that Lucy. Yeah. Well listen, this this has been an absolute delight this. Um I cannot recommend your expressos highly enough. They've, they've come at the perfect time kind of in my career and I'm just thinking about this. And they're brilliant because you can well, this is what I do anyway. I read one of them and it maybe takes me kind of 10, 15 minutes to read, and then I'm on like a three or four hour journey following <laughs> the links to the research and so on. But it you write it, it summarizes, it gets to the heart of the issue straight away. I think they're fair, I think they're balanced, and they, they just tackle things that are just, well, that should be at the forefront of all maths teachers' minds. So I think they're absolutely wonderful. So the last thing I was going to ask you is, can you give us a bit of a, a, a world exclusive of some of the things you're going to be covering next in the Express? Ooh, what's what's next on the agenda? I can. I'm having, at the moment, uh, this wonderful privilege of researchers now knocking on my door asking to collaborate with me on Nice. It, which is such a joy. Um, so I'm looking at uh, something that I was asked to look at, which lots of teachers, are uh, rightly very into at the moment is marking um, so I am working on marking at the moment um, that's hopefully going to come out soon um, another big issue um, is working memory um, and I noticed that you mentioned that a few times it seems to be yes. um, something that specifically in maths you know we're we're really interested in the interaction of how that works with cognitive development how that works with our subjects progressions and how we structure learning um, in terms of content but also in terms of you know just the activities that students are doing and, and how we space them out and all of those things um, so that's also uh, in the pipeline um, and then also uh, quite a lot of work 
being done on um, learners with specific dis- disabilities, which I'm really looking forward to as well, because that has potential to really benefit all students. Um, so those are some of the things that are uh, under consideration at the moment. Um, if you're following espressos very closely, you might realise that I don't quite put them out once a month as I would like to. <laughs> <laughs> That's because other things get in the way. <laughs> of course. Um, I do my best, but yeah, they're roughly monthly, sometimes a little longer because, you know, I'm really committed to the quality and sometimes that just takes a little longer. And, you know, I'm very, very lucky and I I realise this, you know, I don't have a lesson the next day that that's the deadline. You know, I have, well, I want to make this thing as good as it can be within a reasonable time limit. So, you know, I'm very lucky that I'm able to do that. So apologies if you're slightly, you know, on tenterhooks. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> no they're definitely they're definitely <laughs> worth the w- to quality that's getting in the way there <laughs> absolutely no they're, they're definitely worth the wait and I, i'd love that sometime in the future when, when you've a few more under your belts to get you back on lucy because this has been absolutely fascinating this so Thanks. final thing for me is just yeah th- thank you for all the work you do and please thank your colleagues at cambridge maths because it's, it's a fantastic website and and thank you for taking the time to speak to me i've, I've loved every minute of it you're more than welcome thank you So there you have it. There was my interview with Lucy Rycroft-Smith. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. I flipping love talking to Lucy. So many, again, I mean, it's every single time on this podcast, there's just so many ideas swirling around in my head. And I love the fact that we got to talk about areas that, that I've not discussed previously on this podcast, but it's also kind of teed up some of the guests I've got coming up in the future. And I feel I've got more questions and more ideas and a little bit more background knowledge to hopefully really make the most out of those interviews. So I wanted to just reflect on a couple of those in this takeaway. Um, The first is mixed attainment teaching or mixed ability teaching, um, as it's often possibly wrongly called. Um, Now, as I mentioned with Lucy, I'm I'm pretty rubbish at this, I'll be honest. I've I've dabbled in the past um, in one of the schools I taught at previously. We experimented with year seven and eight, teaching them in mixed attainment classes. um, And I struggled. And I think the struggle was, was with the differentiation element. And I don't know if I was building it up too much in my mind, but when I went into those lessons... I thought to myself, right, differentiation is the absolute key to getting this right. And I was very reluctant to teach the lesson in a way that I normally would, which would be modeling, which would be getting kids to practice um, and and kind of a more teacher led approach that I've really been discussing a lot in these, these last few episodes. For me, that didn't feel quite right in a mixed ability class because I thought to myself, right, I'm going to get kids who already know this. And I'm going to get kids who um, I'm going too fast for them. And in the end, I'm going to do that classic thing of pitching to the middle and it's compromise and no one's going to be well suited to it. So I felt the need to do kind of project based and inquiry based and, and kind of investigative lesson, uh, lessons with them. But I don't think I delivered it particularly well. Um, and the point I made with Lucy is this is something that I need to get better at. And we all do because essentially every class we teach is mixed attainment, regardless of whether it's set it or not. And it goes back to that classic thing that just because uh, you're teaching a top set and just because uh, certain kids have absolutely nailed algebra doesn't mean they're going to be good at the geometry side of things or the data side of things. And, and in teaching, we're forever surprised by what kids can and can't do. And that that's whether they're in the tightest knitted set ever in terms of perceived ability or if they're in mixed ability classes. So... 
my aim now is I'm going to get better at this. This is one of my big 2018 aims. Um, so I'm going to interview people. I'm going to do a lot more reading on it. So hopefully I will return to this um, in a future episode. Um, the next thing I wanted to just mention briefly is times tables. Now, now as I hope kind of came across, um, well, two things really I wanted to just clear up here. Firstly, I am convinced that automation and fluency are crucial. I'm absolutely convinced by that. Um, they are a huge advantage um, for problem solving and they are a huge advantage for the vast number of um, areas of maths that are intimately timed to, uh, tied to times tables. And there is a big, big difference between a child knowing um, the answer to a times table quickly or having to think and contemplate that answer to that times table. And I think as much as I admire the work of Joe Bowler, I think we disagree slightly on this. Um, and I know Joe's big point, and Lucy mentioned this in both times tables and we talked about the anxiety thing was the timed element of it and I certainly see that but I, I think I think the time stuff can be done in a pretty fun way if I'm honest and um, times table rock stars fellow uh, former podcast guest Bruno Reddy and his wonderful thing there and um, if kids are doing that on their own and um, they've got the timed element um involved but they've not got that pressure of uh, having to perform in front of their classmates or their teacher it's just that the, they can try and get that fluency in times tables in their own time, in a kind of calm, relaxed environment. And sure, the time pressure, if I don't know if pressure is the right word, but the timed element is certainly there. And I think it needs to be there to help kids get this fluency and automaticity that I think is so important. But it's in a kind of more fun, less daunting, hopefully less anxiety um inducing manner so i like uh, that and i like numeracy ninjas as well again former podcast guest will emney's uh, thing there and again it is i think as lucy said it's about a mixture of different approaches it's about how well you know your kids uh, what they react to but I certainly a mistake I've made in the past is not putting enough emphasis on automaticity and fluency and knowing what I now know about the, the workings of working memory and the limits of working memory, I am convinced that that's important. And I mentioned with Lucy as well, I'm a huge fan of Joe Bowler's number talks, but I find that the kids who have got that automaticity and fluency in times tables, they just get so much more out of it. They are able to flexibly break apart numbers, put them together, because they can, they can consider those elements of it without their working memories becoming clogged up and bogged down by, by trying to figure out simple things like what is five times seven? And I'm not convinced that you can develop the two, that automaticity and this flexibility with numbers at the same time, as effectively as you can if you get the fluency first. But that is just my pers personal opinion. I am more than happy to be proved wrong as I regularly am on this show. And the final thing I wanted to talk about, and this is, again, it's, it's no surprise that this um, absolutely fascinates me, is, is this um, idea of confidence. This getting a sense of how confident students are about the answers they give and then relating it to the answers themselves. And it, it, I'll be honest with you, like I've been doing a lot, a lot of reading about future podcast guest Colin Foster, but I didn't realize that he was uh, really into this confidence stuff as well. So that, <laughs> that this could be an eight hour epic when I speak to Colin, because I have so many things I want to speak to him about. Um, but just one practical thing I just wanted to mention about the hypercorrection effect. And uh, again, if, if you missed it or you, you aren't aware of the hypercorrection effect, 
this is where there's kind of a bigger jump in learning if students are confident they've got an answer right and then they find out that it's wrong as opposed to if they weren't that confident in the first place it's almost kind of I think of it kind of like a shock or a surprise factor um, and it's uh, again there's not a great deal of research um, in maths um, on this but there is in other domains and I, I see no reason why this shouldn't work in mathematics as well so a really kind of simple practical thing I do um, to kind of take advantage of this and I've started building this into my practice and it's it's making a huge difference already um, and I do this with classwork and I do it with low stakes quizzes as well and that is just before I reveal the answers I say to the kids just have a quick look over your work and I just want you to put a score out of 10 for how confident you are over each answer now this serves two purposes which both I think are interesting First, it actually makes kids check their work because <laughs> how many times do you say to kids, make sure you check your answers when you're finished and they flipping don't. Like, I don't think there are any three three other words that kind of go in one, out, in one ear and out of the other ear more than check your work with kids. But when you say go and assign a confidence score, it implicitly makes kids have to check the work. So that's one advantage. But the second is you get this hypercorrection effect. So when then kids mark their work or I project the answers up on the board, I say to students, right, any that you've got wrong, just compare it to your uh, your confidence score. Just have a look at that and start your thinking when you kind of contemplate these answers. Start it on the ones where you thought you got it right, but you've actually got it wrong. And again, just this little thing of, of making kids reflect, take a moment, moment of quiet contemplation, but to prioritize on the surprises just seems to me like a relatively simple way to, to take advantage of this effect. And I'll tell you, it's going down really, really well. It's making kids um, have a lot more kind of ownership and interest in the marking process. And it leads to some fascinating discussions when, when um, at the end of this, when we say to, well, when I say to students, right, which answers surprised you there? Which ones were you sure about, which actually you got wrong? And when we dig into why they were sure, it's really uncovering some interesting misconceptions. So I would strongly advise uh, trying that one out. Anyway, that just about brings us to the end. So all that's left for me to do is once again thank Lucy, absolutely wonderful guest. Um, I cannot recommend her Espresso series uh, highly enough, so check that out. There's links to everything we've talked about on the podcast page. Um, I've got some absolutely cracking podcast guests coming up in the future. I'm so, so, so excited. I, I don't want to mention any names just in case something falls through, but I can't flip and wait. So they're, they're coming soon. Um, thank you for, for, for listening, for, for uh, spreading the word, for the reviews that you've given. Thank you for getting it to 100,000 downloads. It means the world to me. Uh, thank you to podcastthemes.com for the jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. And yeah, I'm just looking forward to sharing more of these episodes with you over the coming months and the coming years, hopefully. So thanks so much again. You take care of yourselves and farewell for now. Bye.